You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello and welcome back to the Movie Graveyard. We got an exciting topic for today's show. But as always, I'm joined by uh, one of the the old timers here at the Movie Graveyard. I'm joined by Trev. Trev, how are you doing, man? I'm doing very well, Goat. Thanks for letting me uh, come out and play, so to speak. Yes. So. <laughs> I'm glad you heard my bottles clanking outside your window. <laughs> but yeah, we got a great topic uh, you know, brought to us by Trev, and he, he pitched me this idea, and I said, that's a great idea, for, you know, because these are two films that I love, and it'd be nice to kind of talk about them a little bit. But more importantly, kind of you know, look at them together in a way that we could contrast them and you know, talk about maybe the historical context in which they were released. But yeah, this yeah. is interesting because, I mean, um, so, I mean, I'm sure people probably just know just from seeing the name of the episode, but it's, you don't often, I, not as often as you'd think, hear these two movies discussed together, but the comparison points are pretty interesting because not only are these both from the same year, and not only do they both start with the same letter, but these are two movies that are both based on novels, um, both about New York gangs, both made by directors known for working in multiple genres, and they're both definitely cult films at this point. One of them more so than the other, but um, so there's a lot of similarities to discuss, but also some big differences. Yeah, before we really launch and even the first one, like maybe we should talk about the background. I think it's interesting, kind of like a prelude here, is um, during, I guess, 1978, all the different studios, there was like an arms race to get these gangs films out. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was just like, was a coincidence of these different writers and directors bringing shit together. But uh, yeah, it's really weird because it's like, basically, I think the one that really got going the first, like according to that article we, we checked out was, um, seemed like the uh, Wanderers was kind of kicking around first and then... Yeah. Uh, and then uh, that was set up with Warner Brothers, and then um, over at Paramount, uh, Walter Hill and uh, the guy he was working with, Larry Gordon, uh, kind of came together like, "Hey, if if we could get Paramount to greenlight this real quick, would you want to do it?" And he's like, and Walter Hill was like, "Yeah, sure, let's let's go for it." And that was the Warriors project. And but but the thing that's interesting is like even when they first kind of like, you know, got the germ of the Warriors going, they knew, they already knew that they had to shoot it super quick, super cheap, and get it out before the Wanderers came out, which, like, for, like, our our uh, listener base here, Trev, people roughly around our age, we probably remember the 90s when, like, these movies would come out that would be, like, almost the exact same. Like, you, yeah. had, you had, like, Dante's Peak and Volcano, and then you yep. had, like... Deep, Armageddon and yeah, Arm- uh, Deep Impact, yeah. Yeah, Armageddon, Deep Impact. I mean, those films are, like, exactly the same, and it's kind of funny that they just grouped all these films back in you know 1978 when they're getting these projects together as gang films because all these films are completely different and we should say there was some other ones thrown into the mix too mm-hmm. uh like this one called boulevard nights which i hadn't even heard on were you aware of boulevard nights at all no i had not heard of that either yeah and then finally too like behind the scenes at the studio like warner brothers was also cranking out like other ones like they had over the edge which they fr- I th- I just thought it was hilarious that Over the Edge got swept up in this uh this uh you know kind of time race or whatever to get all these gang films out and Over the Edge actually ended up suffering because it was the, the kind of the last to the party and they said oh it's a gang film so let's let's not market it it's like the last one out nobody's going to give a shit about it but Over the Edge is a very fascinating film in its own right based on a true story about kids rebelling in a very kind of uh, you know 
a developing uh, affluent uh, suburb. So I, that blew me away when when I <laughs> I read that they you know that pretty much got caught up in the gang film hysteria because Over the Edge is not a gang film at all. Yeah, well, it's even kind of interesting to look back and, and kind of try and figure out, like you said, why was there like this this arms race to get all these gang movies? Like, what was in the ether at the time? And I know, like around this time, there was a lot of concern about gangs, especially in New York. Um, but that's interesting, even looking using that prism to look at these two films because one of them feels like made to be more of a cautionary tale about what could happen with gangs, even though that's the one that, oddly enough, would be more celebrated by actual gangs in a sense, as we'll talk about. But then the other one is really a, a very nostalgic look at like why it's great to be part of a gang, you know. And and as and again, just one is they're different time periods and everything. But um, so yeah, like you said, they're not very similar other than just like Hollywood is like we need gang movies. Yeah, it's it's really weird because it's like it's like the Warriors are more like you know even though it's a very fantastical over the top movie, the Warriors like it's it's more akin to the legit real life gangs like the Bloods and the Crips and whatever. Whereas mm-hmm. the Wanderers is very much like uh in the mode of like what you would think of like Danny Zuko in Greece <laughs> you know what i mean yeah there's actually there are some like real gangs in the wanderers um they're kind of more on the side than the sidelines a little bit um in particular i know the ducky boys were like a real gang uh in the in the uh, in new york around that time that the movie takes place but uh yeah it's definitely looking at it with a more like oh isn't it great <laughs> to be a part of this kind of you know lens exactly so yeah, rolling into the Warriors and talking about it a little bit uh, for uh, I guess nineteen nineties basketball fans. Uh, this movie, you have this movie to thanks for the reason Shaquille O'Neal kept running around after every championship saying, "Can you dig it?" <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so basically the Warriors starts out, and um, I don't know. Should we talk about like this uh, like director's cut thing or whatever? Did you want to touch on that at all? Trey? Well, I think we could talk about that after we just cover the plot and everything. So yeah. I've, I've, I've definitely got some things to say about the director's cut, but yeah. um, but we should mention that like for anyone who just looks at the Warriors and thinks it's just like this very simple story, which it is, but it's interesting to note that as we said, it's based on uh, a 1965 novel by Saul Urich, which itself is actually based on um, the the famous Greek story of uh, Anabasis from Xenophon, which is the 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 story of um, the March of the Ten Thousand, which is a story about like a Greek you know army that had to march through tons of enemies through Persia and Mesopotamia. So it's just interesting. It has this like very kind of like literary roots behind it. Um, I haven't read the novel. I'm really I really want to. I don't know if you read anything about it. The novel sounds a little bit more uh, complex a little bit more character development and partly because they made this film in such a rush to beat the wanderers out to the box office. Um, that's why it really got kind of like pared down into just this kind of more comic booky action movie. Yeah. And I, and I saw Walter Hill said like, in order to actually do like a, a straight up uh, adaptation of the book and be realistic about it, you would probably have to do like more of an ethnic casting, pretty much just almost exclusively black and Hispanic actors, you know, which, mm-hmm. which would be, yeah, would be more realistic. Unfortunately, the studio was not going to go for it this, at this time. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, you know, so Walter Hill had to take what he considered a more comic booky approach. But uh, basically, the setup is very simple. And I got to say, just a piece of, like, filmmaking note, like, I think Walter Hill did amazing with the opening title sequences with, first of all, the music's great and the titles Mm -hmm. and just the quick cut editing. I mean, right off the bat, like, you don't feel like you're watching a movie from 1979. It feels very much more modern than what it really is. Yeah. But it's just, like, cutting in these little kind of dialogue 
uh, snippets, uh, you know, between the um, warriors. And it also shows, like, little clips of the other gangs assembling. Everybody's on their way to this giant meeting uh, called by this guy Cyrus. But this opening is very quick and efficient and great because you – with these little dialogue snippets, you totally get the personalities of the different warriors. And I think the film would really suffer if you didn't have this, Trev, because without it, like, you would just see them all kind of show up to the meeting, the warriors all dressed in the same garb, and you wouldn't, everybody would kind of like blur together, became nameless and faceless if you didn't do the opening this way. Yeah, because the, the way the rest of the film is designed, um, once the action gets going, there's not much time for the film to slow down and give any more character development. So it's actually kind of important to get that all out of the way up front. Exactly. And uh, so they, they meet in this park, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the park, but obviously it's a real place in uh, New York. It's a Van, Van Cortland Park. That's right. And, and obviously I think one of the things that we all were blown away by as kids or was seared into our memory, Trev, was the poster uh, VHS box cart. A box art of the um all the gangs you know mm-hmm. like together in the meeting or whatever it's just literally this giant mural and um i gotta say i always like marveled at that as a kid trev because i was just like how did like somebody like you know draw this paint this like it's so like detailed <laughs> you know what i mean yeah even though the guy in the foreground who i suppose is supposed to be swan is not actually swan and not in a warrior's vest he's just right. like it looks more like a like john rambo or something but yeah, and like, you know, um, they really went like over the top to be casting unknowns also because the budget was low and all that. But like also, too, like that's why I always wondered about that poster when, like you said, when you look at it, nobody really, you know, like they, they resemble like, you know, like the Baseball Furies and all that. They're on Like they resemble the way they look in the movie, but nobody facially is exactly the same. That's why I almost wonder if that um, poster was perhaps <laughs> made before the casting was final or something like that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, it almost, yeah, it's like... Um almost like a a piece to sell the film a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So basically you have, um, this guy, Cyrus, he's, he's in charge of like the biggest gang in New York, you know, and and like, like Gramercy riffs. That's right. The Gramercy riffs. And they're like, I would say the Gramercy riffs are less of a gang and more of an army. Wouldn't you say? (laughs) Well, that's, that's definitely how it's sold, right? Like they obviously, uh, they have some clout because they, they, they sell early on how big of an idea it is, is that every gang has agreed to come to this meeting. And so every gang is sending nine delegates and bringing no weapons, no guns, no knives. And so you realize that Cyrus must have some pull already for people to agree to this. And they look like they're the only gang there. That's like the, the, almost the entire gang is there, not just kind of nine delegates. Exactly. So basically everything, everybody gathers. Cyrus gives a really rousing speech about how if the gangs all work together, because you got to understand, like, most of these gangs are neighborhood gangs. Like, yeah, they have maybe 20, 30 members each, some of them, but, like, they're very, like, you know, they, they, they're, a lot of them are in charge of, like, you know, just a couple city blocks worth of turf. You know, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, even with all their crime or whatever they do, like, they're not very influential or powerful. So basically, yeah, he sells them on the idea of um, basically if they, you know, band together, go block by block, you know, eventually lock everything and we're down. Basically like a truce in order to give the real power of uh, New York City to the gangs and like obviously to take power away from the police. But I think really he's also talking on a more intellectual level of like controlling finances and stuff. Like wouldn't you say, Trev? Yeah, for sure. Like almost creating like a, a government um, out of, of the gangs. Yeah, basically, you know, taking disorganized crime and making it organized and possibly. He even says that like because he talks about how we'll be able to, you know, 
take on not just the cops but also organized crime like so they would basically like right. they would outnumber the mafia in new york at that point yeah so it's like a very interesting uh you know setup whatever and uh pretty much right when he finishes speech like something uh a very unexpected happens doesn't it <laughs> Yeah, so we get the uh, the leader of a gang called the Rogues, uh, named Luther, uh, played by the the great uh, David Patrick Kelly, who people will remember from Twin Peaks and The Crow. Yeah. Um, is in uh, you know in the role I just kind of always still kind of mostly associate him with is this one. Yeah. But uh, so as Luther just uh, he's brought a gun even though he wasn't supposed to, and he just shoots Cyrus dead. Um, you know, and chaos ensues, and unfortunately. Fortunately for the warriors, one of their members actually sees Luther do that, um, making him a witness to to this. And that leads Luther to actually frame the warriors for the murder. He kind of just yells, like, I saw the warriors did it. Yeah. And in the, in the resulting chaos, the police have also just shown up and the whole all the, all the gangs are scattering already. But um, because he kind of points out the warriors as the as the perpetrators, the uh, the Gramercy Rifts. I mean, we don't see it, but we can pretty much assume they kill the warrior's warlord, which means leader in this caste system, uh, yeah. Cleon. Yeah, and it, it, I have to say, like, you know, until this go around and then reading, because I was kind of like, what happened to that guy? Because the Grammarcy Rifts, like, like basically, it's really weird. Like, Cleon kind of, like, runs up to see what happened to Cyrus. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, like is he okay? Is he, is he alive? Is he dead? And then because um, you have... Um, David Patrick Kelly screaming, it was him, it was the Warriors! Like, basically, they just jump him and beat him. And, like, I have to admit, Trev, like, I never quite put it together until this viewing. Uh, and I've seen this movie at least six, seven, eight times over the years. But I never put it together. It was even reading, like, the internet comments that, like, yeah, it's assumed that he was beaten to death. But, like, yeah, it's just weird because, like, like, the Warriors have, like, no... And part of it is because they don't really know. They just get separated and shit. But, like, I thought it was weird that there's, like, almost no reaction the rest of the movie that, that Cleon is dead. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think you're right. I, mean, I think you can buy into it that way. Like, they don't really have time to stop and process it. But also, you said, they don't see what happened to Cleon. So yeah. they're really just operating off an assumption that like, we have to get home. You know, and they might just think, like, Cleon is going to meet them there. Which, I mean, obviously, it's, like, a little bit of filmmaking magic. But, uh how does it sit with you the the fact that that they were able to shoot cyrus in such you know whatever such a crowded space and no one else saw you know what i mean like did that always play like like a little fake to you well not the shooting but what plays a little pokey with me every time i watch it um and don't get me wrong I, i love this movie as well we'll talk about all the reasons why in a moment but uh I just always thought it was so weird that they just instantly like believe Luther when he says, I saw them, they did it, you know, and like nobody even like, like you said, like Cleon ran up to see if Cyrus was okay. <laughs> so you yeah. think like that would tell say something, but also like they don't look for a gun or anything. They just, they just take Luther on his word. And because we don't really learn anything about Luther or the rogues, it's, it's, it's hard to buy into why they would believe this guy. Yeah. And, um, I have to say, Trev, like, this this scene, and um, I heard it was very difficult to film because they actually had thousands of, you know, untrained actors or not actors, I guess, extras, whatever. But I have to say, this scene, watching this again in modern days, it really was impressive to me. I mean, obviously, yeah. I'm sure there's probably, like, more impressive, you know, giant crowds in, like, really old Hollywood films like Cleopatra or Ben-Hur or whatever, but, like... Watching this, and I have to say, like, like I, I rewatched uh, Avengers Endgame last night, and the end part where the thousands and millions of uh, Thanos's whatever hordes run over the hill, it was not impressive to me as as this was watching these thousands of um, 
you know, gang, quote unquote, gang members like escape this park. I mean, it it's really plays well as like pure chaos and, you know, different uh, the crowds moving in different directions and making it hard to get out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, I love the part where the Warriors just they kind of intentionally kind of go towards this like uh, side part. Because it's kind of like almost in an amphitheater, I guess we should say. It's like in an amphitheater type setting that they're in, really. And, like, they kind of bust out of this, like, wooden, like... It's not a gate. It's a wall. But, like, they just bust through it like it's nothing. Like, I don't know. Like, this whole escape sequence I found, like, like really, really impressive. And, like, you know, considering it's something relatively simple. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's always just cool seeing that many extras in a scene. And, like I said, um, this goes back to what you are mentioning, too, about the opening when they're cutting to the various gangs on their way to the meeting. Just I remember as a kid seeing this movie for the first time, just how exciting that opening is because you really start to already get a vibe for the film with all these gangs and the different outlandish costumes they wear. And so, you know, it's it's not just a thousand extras in a park all dressed similar. They all have very unique looks. And even during like the, the chaos of them running away, then you're trying to spot like, oh, what's this gang's aesthetic? You know, so there's a lot to look at and a lot to take in. Exactly. And uh, they kind of like regroup in a nearby cemetery. I like this scene a lot too, even though it's a basic little scene. And um, basically, you know, they kind of recount who's where, what's what, who's missing. And, you know, we get the idea through the chaos that, you know, they don't really know exactly what's going on. But this is where we really get the real main premise of the movie set up in that, like, I think it's roughly, Trev, like about 30 miles where they have to make it back to their home turf of Coney Island. Yeah. And uh, the problem with that is, is is a gang cannot just travel through, you know, another gang's territory. You have to fight your way through because you're not supposed to right. be there, period. So. Right. The idea of the meeting was that all gangs were supposed to have a truce now, but it never got finalized. So right. they because it's because there was no deal made. They're, they're in enemy territory. And for them, it's like, you know, you say it's 30 miles. What's what's I like that? I really like this element of the film that. All they really have to do is get to this one train, which will take them to Coney Island. But it turns out the other gangs are smart enough to c- cause a fire, which stops that train, essentially diverts them. and means they have to go most of the way on, on foot. Yeah. And uh, I guess we did, at this point we should talk about this is like the one, I guess, element of the movie I really liked as a kid. But now I'm really kind of like, I don't know if this really plays well. The idea that there's there's a a, ra- a, a lady on the radio. Oh, I still love the radio DJ. <laughs> Do you? I always loved it as a kid. It was seared in my brain. The um, the lips, you know, the clothes. You never see this lady's full face. You just kind of, you know, kind of see her mouth and her lips. Although and... it's very recognizably Chief from uh, Where in the World Is Carmen San Diego. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same hair, everything. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I, I mean, I like the idea of it that it's like kind of like broadcasting the gang news out and giving updates. But it's like, how would she know this information so quick? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I was kind of took it like, I mean, it's you're right, it's not said. Part of me just kind of feels like she's actually affiliated with the Gramercy Riffs, and so she's kind of like their mouthpiece a little bit. Um, as we said, if they're already kind of the main gang, it, it would make sense to me that she's kind of you know speaking for them. I will say as I, I still like it because I think her little interludes are interesting and it's just a nice way to like break up, you know, the, the film. Um, I do think they should have scenes of the gangs actually listening to it, though, which they don't. Have. You only ever see her talk. Right. It, it would be probably more helpful to actually see some of the gangs with boomboxes and stuff listening to this to kind of more sell the idea that this is where they're getting the news about why they're after the Warriors. Yeah, because it, it, you know, the idea of it being broadcast over the radio like that, it's it's a nice way to kind of, you know, turn up the notch on the tension and whatnot. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of make it seem, make the situation seem like more, cause, cause the night does get, you know, worse as it goes on for the Warriors. But like, I think this would definitely, you know, you know, put it in more of a pressure cooker, you know, but, I'll, but I'll tell you why I like it. And actually watching in this film again, um, I don't know about you. This is a film, like you said, you've seen it what, like six or seven times. It's probably the same for me. And this is a movie that I always like forget that I like, you know, like it's not, yeah. uh, there's, uh, I mean, it's a movie I love, but I, I feel like I only watch it once every like four years or something. And I kind of then stop thinking about it. And then when I come back to it, I'm like, oh yeah, I love this movie. Um, and then watching it this most recent time, I was really struck by the, the modern film. It reminds me of the most or modern series is, is John Wick. Yeah. Um, and and the, so what I like about the radio DJ and some other stuff, and this is the same thing I like about John Wick is that it's just this idea of world building, right? So it's a very simple film. It doesn't stop a lot to establish characters or, or uh, plot, but it's doing a lot of like interesting things. Like even the idea that all these gangs were just told that we learn these terms, like the leader is called the warlord. And then our main character, Swan, he's the war chief. So he's the guy who kind of strategizes everything for them. And then you have this radio DJ that speaks to all these gangs. So it's already sell- selling this idea that there's this kind of like society that exists with all these gangs. That's why I like that stuff. It's those little touches that sell a world, essentially. And that reminds me very much of how John Wick has all the stuff as the sequels go on where you yeah. you learn about how they have their own radio network and everything, too. And <laughs> Literally, he can't hide for like one minute without yeah. somebody popping out. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so... They make their way pretty much, they have to, I thought this was a great sequence too, where they have to, like, it, it starts raining, I guess we should say, so everything's slick, like like huge puddles on the street, and there's there's a um, a gang, pretty much a shavehead gang, called the Turnbull ACs, not skinheads, because uh, I believe they're multiracial, um, mm-hmm. but they basically have an old school bus, and they're all hanging off of it, and swinging bats, and doing whatever, and there's a great scene where the Warriors have to outrun them in the rain, you know, because they're about to miss the train that's up on the uh, the station track. And, like, I have this say, Trev, maybe it's just because I'm an old man now and, you know, I look at things as being more dangerous and, you know, more more whatever as I used to. But watching the Warriors haul ass on those rain-slick streets, mm-hmm. <laughs> it added another level of uh, tension to me, so... Yeah, there's a lot. Watching this film, it's like this. making this movie was a workout for these actors, for sure. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, they're, they're obviously all in great physical shape. I don't think I don't think anybody in this, you know, in the Warriors gang is, is probably over 8% body fat. And they probably... Yeah, they, yeah. James Remar definitely never looked better than this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, it's so weird, too, seeing Remar at, like, this young, too. Because, like... He's really handsome. Like he watches yeah. him, it's, it surprises me that he wasn't like a bigger star coming out of this. And you know, I mean, he's had he's had a good career, obviously, but he's got a charisma for sure. Kind of like leaps off the screen in this, and he's got like you know he's got those those kind of traditional um, you know movie star kind of looks to a certain degree. So I'm almost surprised he didn't become more of a leading man out of this. Yeah, uh, I always wonder because he famously. Um you know, was the original choice for Hicks and Aliens and had to leave mm-hmm. the production after a few days for, you know, whatever problems or whatever. But I always wondered how his career trajectory would have changed if he would yeah. have played, you know. And and even then, I wonder how that movie would have felt because uh, Michael Bean is just, he's just so perfect as Hicks. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's the thing is, like, you say that and you're like, oh, yeah, how would that have been different? But then again, Michael, it's not like Michael Bean ever became a big star. Right, so I don't know that that would have done much for Remar anyways. Maybe, maybe he would have never, maybe he never would have been the second Raiden, though. So he wouldn't want to lose that. You know? That is true. <laughs> Man, that that probably, that Raiden one is probably the most brutal whatever. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it was like one of the few times Remar kind of got to play a leading man in the 80s. Um, 
it's it's nothing like super memorable, or whatever. But like a little movie called Quiet Cool. You ever seen that? I have not. No. Yeah, it's good. I don't even think it's out on disc because I remember I rented it on VHS uh, when I used to work at a video store. But yeah, poor Remar. Um, so yeah, so like you said, like they make it to the train, but then they only get so far because somebody set a fire on the track, so they have to get off. And I have to say, like the, just the various scenes, like my favorite parts of this movie in terms of like the action, I think it's pretty much all the subway station scenes, and there's quite a few of them. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just thought they're like, well, whatever. So basically, they get off and they have to meet this. Uh, well, they don't. Have, well, they go through some turf and they meet a. I thought this was an interesting choice, really. But they meet this really wimpy, poor, dirty, grimy gang called the Orphans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really like the scene. Again, this goes back to my world building thing. So there's just a little detail here about how this gang is like so underrespected that they weren't even invited to the meeting, and they're very, they're very bitter about that. But that also means that they're not in a very big position to fight the warriors, and their leader is kind of. He, he tries to put up a big like show, right? But he's kind of instantly intimidated by Swan and is basically just going to let them pass their territory uh, with no repercussions until he's kind of mocked a little bit by this young woman who becomes the the, the female lead of the movie named Mercy, who in a sense, she she lives in this area. She's clearly very familiar with the with the orphans, but even she thinks they're like kind of sad and pathetic, you know? Well, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because cause the orphans... And the warriors, like, they pretty much, and also, too, because, like we said, the orphans aren't really in the loop. They don't know that the warriors have been accused or whatever. They, they just see it's this gang that needs to get through their territory. But they're able to come to, like, very easily uh, an agreement that the, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll let the warriors pass. And then, like you said, it's, it's this girl comes out and, like, really kind of, like, basically calls them all pussies is what yep. happens. Yeah. And so then, you know, and the orphans, like, even though they're all scrawny, wimpy, whatever. And, like, I love that guy who plays the leader of the orphans with his kind of, like, little messed up eye. Like, that. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I miss the days of, uh, you know, character actors. Interesting like, looking actors. Yeah. 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 Uh, just great. And, um, yeah. And, like, it's funny because the one guy who's, like, I mean, I guess technically he's, like, the second in command of the orphans, Manny or whatever. Like, the, the guy who has, like, the kind of big, messy afro. Uh, I actually heard him on a podcast a, a, few, a few years ago, and it was, like, kind of all about the Warriors, whatever. And he was talking about, like, you know, the scene where, like, you know, the orphans chase him and the Warriors blow up the car with the Montauk cocktail and all that. He was pretty much saying, like, like, shit was just wild. Like, they were close to the explosion. Like, nothing was really, like, overly safe. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, like I said, this so it doesn't surprise me just because, first of all, I mean, Walter Hill, Walter Hill strikes me as kind of a let's just do it kind of director. But then you add in the idea that they, like I said, they were making this in a very fast timeline. Yeah. Uh, there's no time for safety checks and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's basically a chase scene after that. And then for this part, like, I don't know how much we want to go scene by scene after this trev but it's like it's like basically for the next i'd say probably 20 25 minutes of the film i mean other than uh swan kind of you know has his run-ins with uh with this female character he starts coming somewhat of an antagonist somewhat of a love interest like we, we pretty much just go into action mode for a little bit and you start you just basically start like getting rapid fire encounters with all the various gangs what you say yeah. Yeah. And this is what, yeah, as the middle section of the film is, is really like set piece after set piece. Um, 
And of course you get, so, I mean, you know, you have a confrontation with the orphans. Um, we meet the Lizzie's eventually, which is the all female gang. And of course the, the one that most people remember the film for, uh, the baseball furies who definitely are like visually the most compelling, uh, compelling gang in it for sure. And that, and that sequence, you know, uh, is, is pretty awesome. It's just really just another fit, uh, foot chase, but then it ends in that great baseball bat fight in the park. Yeah. So, like, like during all these shenanigans of um, basically going off and on the subway here, like, the cops, all, the cops are keyed in, and they're looking for the Warriors, I guess, or maybe just any gang. It seems like more they're just rounding up all the gangs that are loose in the city from this big meeting. And, like, we do, we do get an early exit from one of the characters here. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's not witnessed by any of the other characters, so it's a, once again, it's like a death of a, a major character that's kind of no-sold. And uh, Fox gets thrown during a scuffle with the um, with a police officer, and he was actually the warrior who kind of witnessed Cyrus being shot or whatever. Yeah. Um, which I always thought it was weird, too. Like, am, did I miss the line or whatever when they're in the cemetery? Did he ever convey that he actually saw who did it? No, he didn't. And so uh, that's that's where I, like we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. But I feel like that's kind of a missed opportunity because it's, it doesn't really matter because the, the, the price has already been put on their head. Um, and also, I, I guess now that I think about it, that probably was a choice because for most of the movie, they don't even realize that they're being targeted. They right. don't think they just think this is a matter of territorial brawls. They don't realize that every gang has been told that uh, they killed Cyrus until the the Lizzie's kind of reveal it. Right. Um, so I guess that's why they never have him say anything. So the rest of the characters don't know that. But you do wonder why he wouldn't have said it, you know. Exactly. And then as you said, like once he's taken out of the picture halfway through the film, you realize that there's no like uh, there's no threat to the rogues anymore, you know, in terms of the the warriors telling what really happened. Yeah. And during that scuffle, like, uh, I think three members of the Warriors make it onto the next train they're supposed to make it onto, and then they eventually end up at the destination where they, you know, meet up with the Lizzies, and like you said, the the other few guys get separated and have to get uh, hunted by the Baseball Furies. And I gotta say, I just want to talk a little bit about the Baseball Furies scene, and this is what I think modern movies are missing, uh, action movies, any type of movie. Um... They're very quick to get to the big whatever wow moments, whereas, like, the actual fight fight against the Baseball Furies is very quick, is very minimal, is not real spectacularly stunt whatever, but the long foot chase scene, I thought, built so much awesome tension. Yeah, I think like what I love about the chase is near the end of the chase, there's a great little moment, and what I love about this film and what I think sets it above being just another generic action film, um... And I don't think it would be remembered as a, and beloved as this cult film if it was just generic. Walter Hill spices in all these little moments. And one of them is here when Ajax is running next to, I think it's Cowboy. And he just said, like, the, the smaller guy says, like, I don't think I can keep running. And I like that Ajax is just like, are you sure? And when the guy's like, yeah, I can't, then Ajax is like, good, because I want to fight. But I even <laughs> I, I like that little character detail for Ajax that... If the guy could have kept running, he would have kept running with him, right? But right. then he feels like he has to protect the rest of his gang because that's his role, right? He's the muscle. So I just think that's a ni- that's a nice little moment. Yeah. So the dispatch. When you say the baseball furies, I mean they definitely got their own thing going on. But don't you think, at least in my childhood mind, I always associate with them. Aren't they kind of like a little bit of an homage to a Clockwork Orange? 
Oh yeah, I think for sure. I always thought like how that would be like the the crappiest gang to end up in because you can't just they got to get up in the morning and put on all this makeup. Yeah, they got to wear this baseball outfit all day. Uh, it's such a it's such a like a theme, you know. It's just like man, how do I end up in this gang? And you know, Walter Hill, um, kind of after the fact in recent years, talks about how he went for this comic booky approach. And I have to say, just the existence of the Baseball Furies, like, kind of backs up what he's saying. I was like, okay, I, I believe that, you know, once the studio said, oh, you can't make it too realistic with the races and what all that, like, okay, like, the fact that you put the Baseball Furies, because there's no way they could be a, a functional operating gang, unless they're just, like, literally, like, a nighttime gang that only comes out at night, you know what I mean? But, mm-hmm. but yeah, but I, I love that scene. And uh, basically what happens is... um kind of after they dispatch the Furies, and, like, I, this was always one of the most memorable scenes to me, too. Like, they're making their way through the park. Um, I want to say... Am I getting this right? I think at this point, this group is Swan, Cochise, uh, Ajax, and then I always forget the guy with the little hat on. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that's it. So, basically, they're walking by a bench... And, like, this is, like, the middle of the night in this park, and there's, like, an attractive woman who's played by a very, very early uh, appearance by Mercedes Rule. Um, Mm -hmm. This is, like, the best piece of trivia for this movie. And, like, she basically, like, flirts with Ajax. And we should say Ajax, he's a a very manly man. (laughs) Yeah, he's very, very uh, hot-headed and uh, very quick to uh, throw out gay slurs whenever anyone doesn't agree with this. (laughs) If you're not willing to have sex with a woman at a drop of a hat, Ajax will yeah. call you a gay slur for sure. And I have to say, like, I think it's kind of genius if you pay attention to that opening montage that I that I praise so highly. He actually throws in that the main reason he's going to the meeting was he wants to find some strange wool along the way. Yeah. <laughs> so even though, like, because, you know, as a kid, I was kind of like, ah, eh, this is a little hokey, whatever. Like, why is he going to stop to hit on this woman when, you know, they're like they're being chased nonstop all night? But then, but then, like as an older, you know, as an adult watching it, I was like, you, you kind of see that opening piece with him and whatever, and then his attitude throughout the movie. I'm like, okay, I kind of buy, you know, he's willing to fight anybody that comes. He's fearless. He's whatever. And if there's an attractive woman flirting with him, you're like, it doesn't matter if they're in the middle of a gang warfare <laughs> type situation. Mm-hmm. I, I, another little thing I like though is I like when he approaches her how not timid right but he doesn't just come up instantly like all macho man he actually does come up and say hey lady are you all right do you need help and that's kind of how he like uh, eases his way in and I always think like whatever this operation is it's doesn't it seem almost like a little unfair because yeah. she does flirt like very heavily with him and she's throwing out she basically is throwing out signals like we are gonna get it on right. I'm not saying I'm not victim blaming or anything but no. it, as as like police like kind of stings go I think you could <laughs> find some problematic elements with this one yeah it's like because like you said like I think when he's like hey are you all right like I think he's I think he knows there's like there's something a little like off about this situation I think he's trying yeah. to size up as this woman a little mentally goofy whatever and like i don't think that would stop him <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I i think yeah like i i definitely call this entrapment and uh he does you know like it almost seems like they almost like kind of start making out a little bit then he obviously mm-hmm. gets too rough and she just cuffs him to the bench and he's trapped and then she starts blowing a whistle which i thought this was hilarious because like when she blew the whistle like actually every time i've seen this movie even i know exactly what's going to happen every time she blows the whistles don't you think there's like some police officers are going to come running out of the bushes instead they're like a mile away in a cop car and they come <laughs> screeching in two yeah. i believe it's two cop cars come screeching in and at this point, you know, because cause he basically called his, uh, you know, 
his warriors friends like you know whatever and said i'm gonna stay here and get you know get some tail or whatever like they basically have remorse because swan is like i'm tired of this asshole i'll just leave him behind so they double back to try and find him to make sure he's okay and they see him getting arrested and like like i think it's pretty cool like you know because i because like you know i guess we should just mention previously fox the guy who got thrown on the um the train tracks uh that was not supposed to happen in the story that way. What happened was the actor had some disagreements with the director, and they basically just chose to write him off. But I think it works well because we, when you couple Cleon getting you know beat down, disappeared, presumably dead, Fox definitely dying, and then Ajax locked up for the night. I think I think like you know every whatever fifteen twenty minutes of the running time, having an, another warrior kind of knocked out of the. The yeah. story, so to speak, and weakening the pack down, making them more vulnerable. Yeah. That kind of ten little Indians formula, I think, works really well for the movie. This is funny because, like, whenever I was when I was younger and would watch this film, I was always like bummed at this point because I, I I thought it kind of was like too bad to lose Ajax at this point in the film because he, since he's like the toughest one, you kind of want him for like whatever the big action climax is going to be. It's the most funny. One watching it today and thinking that i'm sure this was not the thinking but it almost feels like the way they decide to have him like exit the movie almost feels like a, a concession to an audience who would say like mm, this guy keeps throwing out this gay slur well he should get punished for that so let's have him be the one who gets arrested and kind <laughs> right. of taken out you know? <laughs> he definitely pays the price for his rudeness and crudeness yeah. for sure yeah so yeah, so so basically, I, I guess we should say we should get into the Lizzie section where the the three guys who sprint off, who uh, spin off. I, I I can't remember. I'm confused where Cochise is, where he, which group he's in. If he's the one with the Lizzies or Co- the one. Cochise is with the Lizzies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's Cochise. It's, Ver, it's a Vermin, Cochise, and Rembrandt, who's their That's uh, artist. Right. right. Yeah. So you have Cochise, who's who's this um, who's a black gentleman who dresses like an Indian kind of like a native American Indian, which is kind of cool. I like, I kind of always was attracted to, you know, his look in the film. Um, then you have vermin who like, he's, he's important. Like he dishes out lines here and there, but it's like in a weird way, I feel like vermin's main job. And I don't know if this is just the actor or his intentional, like his main thing is like to express emotion throughout the thing. Like every, yeah. like wouldn't you say like, yeah, there's, he's the one who I can't really suss like what his role is in the gang or anything. Um, like I said, he's just kind of, as you said, he's, he talks a lot, but I, I never really got like a sense of his character at all. Really? Yeah. And all the, I have to say all these actors, like even in the beginning, uh, Cleon, like as as he's literally like, I think Cleon probably has literally three minutes of screen time. I have to say for this going for an unknown cast, like all these people are very memorable and very, you know, they, they feel like stars a lot of times, even though they're not the only one that's kind of just there is the, the guy who wears the little hat. And he, I mean, he's not bad. He's, 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 he's good in his own way, but like a lot of these actors are kind of being unknown actors. They do a good job of holding the screen. Like I thought, like I definitely noted that this time watching through, but yeah, so these three guys and, and Rembrandt, I should say he, he's, he's probably like the youngest member of the warriors and he's kind of like a little, I don't know how to describe him. He's a little bit of like a feminine artist type. Like he does all the tagging everywhere they go. He tags up W for warriors and all that kind of stuff. So he's like a little more sensitive uh, or just like, you know, younger inexperienced member of the gang. So he's not really like when they meet the Lizzie's, we should say it's 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 all girl group. Um, I guess they're a gang, but they present themselves more as a social group at first, I think, kind of. And they kind of yeah. take them in, like, oh, yeah, you guys, yeah, we've heard of the Warriors. You guys are so cool. Yeah, come party with us, pretty much, is what happens. 
So, yeah. Some female empowerment going on here in the film, or the closest you're going to get to it in, in The Warriors, I guess, right? This idea that this this gang, because um, the Warriors even say, like, where are your men, you know? Right. And they kind of sell the idea, like, oh, no, they're just gone. But really, we learn, like, no, this, this is the gang of this area. Right, you know? right. It's a little bit of a ruse. And I have to say, like, they pretty, like, these girls, like, they, they pretty much, like, they pretty much full on party with these guys. They surprise them with, uh, supply them with alcohol. It seems mm-hmm. like some weed, like some heavy making outs going. Like, they're even like, oh, you can pick any one of us that you want or whatever. And, like, and like thankfully, Rembrandt is kind of like, because he's, he's not like, you know, he's like more sensitive type. He's not just going to like, you know, hit it and quit it type of guy. He, he's kind of like, because he knows something's wrong. He's, he's like, this is kind of too good to be true type situation. Yeah. He, he starts watching them and he starts noticing, you know, because the girls outnumber the guys, I'd say probably like, probably like 11 or 12 to 3 or so. So he's just kind of like watching the party go on and see everything that's going on. And I got to say, like, again, like great filmmaking. Like I was really feeling the tension during the sequence. Mm-hmm. It's a little old fashioned. You said that he's, he's watching them and you start to realize he, he realizes something is up because the girls see more into each other than they do in, into right. the guys. And that's when he realizes like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, so I don't know if it's a little bit of like like gay panic or just him being like, this is clearly like a ruse, like something's going yeah. on here. They're not really into us, you know? Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense that there's like nine girls kind of all making out with each other and cuddling with each other. And then there's just these like three and, and, and like, they're like, Oh, you can pick any one of us you want. It's kind of like, okay. Like, yeah, something's a little strange. So basically, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the signal is given and all of a sudden the Lizzie's like attacked. Like they start pulling bottles out, knives out, everything out. And, uh, and it's 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 a good little brawl for a, an intergender gang brawl, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Uh, this is. Uh, I mean, all the all these sequences and the Lizzies are like a very memorable gang because they're actually the gang who who comes the closest to getting the better of the warriors. Like they have a very clever plan, and and it yeah. almost works. Yeah, and uh, they totally like they they mean it too because like they totally just uh, slash uh, Rembrandt's uh, arm open and the other two guys kind of you know, and then one of them pulls a gun and it's one of the few times you get some gun action in the Warriors and thankfully you know the guys are able to escape without getting shot or whatever and they have to you know tuck tail so to speak and um, you know run away and I guess at this point the rest of the gang um, Swan and all of them and um, they're kind of. Uh, they're kind of like trying to make their way back to the subway and this is where we get like like another like this is probably this i i don't know maybe this this is the second biggest brawl when they're in the subway station and for some reason i always remember this gang as they were all on roller skates but it's really only like the scout guy that's on roller skates yeah so it's again building tension they're in this giant empty uh, subway station and like this one's like pretty legit, where the other ones were just like the the stairs and the platforms that you walk. Like this one has, like, I mean, they're closed because it's the middle of the night, but they have like shops in there, women's shops, you know, where you buy hats and purses, I guess, food places, hot dog stands, and then there's like I think I would have think that this would have to have been like made for the movie, like set dressing but there's like a weird arcade in there do you remember this trip mm-hmm. <laughs> where there's like there's like a cowboy guy that's like a mannequin that moves and there's like pinball machines and i'm like i don't think even in the 70s you could just leave that shit out in the open in the middle of no, the night and not, especially not in the version of the city we were being sold in this film you know right right and i guess we should when you now that you mentioned that trev the the version of the city we should know you know, because it's very easy with us to watch this and, you know, the clothing and the hairstyles and whatever and say, oh, this is such an old movie. But this movie is actually supposed to take place something like when it was released. It was supposed to be in some indeterminate, you know, 
length of the future. Yeah, it's it's funny because it says that it says like so, like it says like sometime in the future or something. It doesn't really tell you when, but there is a scene where um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this goat, especially when you watch it in HD. They do run by a poster for uh, Foul Play, the uh, the yeah. Goldie Hawn Chevy Chase movie. <laughs> yeah, I see, I see. Which, by the way, you know, and we'll get into it and whatever um, later. The the only the only version of this movie available in high def that I know is the Blu-ray. Um, <clears throat> is uh the director's cut but other than that watching this again and unfortunately it only has dolby digital like straight up dolby dolby digital like the uh the kind of dvd era quality sound but the picture was amazing like the Mm -hmm. the restoration or whatever they did because this came out like it was coincided with the release of that video game that they did so the warriors were kind of like hot again in circa 2007 or whenever this came out but I have to say, like, visually, this movie looked amazing, and it just mm-hmm. blew me away that not only an older movie, but also an ancient uh, Blu-ray, because cause, uh, just a fun fact here, this movie originally came out uh, during the HD Wars Trev of HD, DVD, and Blu-ray. It came out on both formats. Paramount was initially supporting both formats. Then the um, then uh, there was a payoff where Paramount went HD DVD only, so they actually let the Blu-ray go out of print. So the Blu-ray was out of print for a few years. I think I was lucky to snag one before it went whatever. But then, like once the uh, you know the whole thing blew over, the format war blew over. They re-released the Blu-ray, but it it technically is kind of like one of the first very. You know, I think released within the first year of Blu-ray, and uh, it's just amazing that a, a title and a master that old looks amazing as this does. But uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, so they have this. Um, I do you remember this gang's name, Trev? The guys in the overalls. They're they're the punks. The punks. Okay, yeah. Which is funny because they don't. <laughs> with a name like that, you would think you would expect something out of like the poster it's, of uh, it's like class nineteen eighty four. Yeah, it's like the one movie of this era that that didn't do punks with like the over exaggerated like mohawks and chains yeah. and spikes and everything. They're just all like wearing like suspenders and striped shirts. Yeah, they're they almost kind of look like like they definitely have like a uniform, but like they kind of almost look like farm boys in a way. <laughs> yeah, they clearly somebody thinks they're iconic enough because when uh, when Funko did their pop finals, the Warriors, those always come out in, like sets of four. And the four characters they did were Swan, Cochise, Luther, and then this leader of the punks, uh, the roller skate guy. You'd think the Baseball Fury would have been in there, but those were st- that guy was sold more as like an alternate. I think he was exclusive to some retailers. Wow. Yeah, that that's almost like uh, Star Wars making the Boba Fett figure, like the, the rare one, where it's like, mm-hmm. no, that's probably the one, that's actually the only one in the set you probably want to mass produce is that Baseball Fury. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so so they have like a pretty cool brawl where uh, I like the setup of this where they all go, the Warriors I should say they all kind of, you know it's kind of like a uneasy standoff like they know they're being watched and this gang is kind of just like you know all standing around pretending not to be seen even though it's obvious what's going on, so the Warriors like hide in this old timey bathroom, and they basically hide in the stalls and they wait for the guys to come and then like they all jump out and shit and like this is a great brawl because these. These wooden uh, bathroom doors get shattered. People get whatever. Like, I really enjoyed this fight a lot. I mean, I agree. It's a great brawl. It's, like, very exciting. But I will say, just slight, like, not disagreement, but just point, is uh, earlier in the film, there's a moment where Ajax kind of questions Swan uh, taking over leadership and talking about, like, maybe, you you know, I know you're war, you're war chief, but that doesn't mean you should be, like, in charge now. And I almost wonder if he has a point, because strategically, I don't understand the idea of going in the bathroom and just getting in the stalls, because... That the other gang knows they're in there. There's no real strategic advantage to just waiting in the stalls until they open the doors, you know. 
Um, so that part never really makes any sense to me, but yeah, I think it was just cinematic license of anything. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so pretty but much. Also, this is the this is the moment too where Mercy actually gets involved in the brawl too, yeah. and shows that you know she's really willing to kind of uh, fight for the warriors now. And I can't remember if it was right after this scene. I think it maybe it was because they're all beat up and shit. But there's there's a great scene where they make it on the subway and like they're all sweaty, grimy, dirty, and then some people come in from either like a wedding or a prom. <laughs> yeah, it's right here. This that's the other moment I wanted to highlight when I was when I yeah. talked earlier about how I love like little small details in this. I think there's a great little detail. It's every time I watch the movie, it's one of my favorite bits. Um, it's when the prom the prom kids are like looking at them and they're all like you said they're all sweaty and covered in dirt and blood. And Mercy is looking at them and she she gets like self-conscious and she goes to try and fix her hair a little bit. And Swan reaches up and just gently like pulls her arm down. Like, don't don't bother. Don't try to make yourself look pretty for them. They don't know. What, you know, they they don't know what kind of life we have. I love that little character moment. I know. I, like you said, like that moment speaks so much volumes because it's just like, you know, like we li- we live in a different world than they do. Yep. Basically. Yeah. I love that moment. And um yeah, so basically, like we're we're kind of after this moment, it's obvious we're kind of coming into the home stretch. I do want to mention that uh, there, there at some point there was this scene of the rogues, like basically bullying a girl at a, a newsstand and stealing Kit Kats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was pretty funny, but yeah, we're, like we basically come down to like they're pretty much like almost home all the way, and we should say too, we should mention that the rogues like, what was this vehicle that the that the rogues had? Um, Trev was like some kind of like station wagon or something, right? It was so huge though; like they literally fit like twenty guys in it. Like it was yeah. so it was, uh, so weird. Um, I couldn't tell if it was a hearse or what. So they're basically patrolling like Coney Island, and like the Warriors are like almost home. And uh, basically, they're kind of hiding out, and they realize, oh shit, like we got one last brawl. You know what I mean? So like they they're, they're under this like kind of like bridge underpass thing, and they're grabbing you know. Uh, spare pieces of wood and different things and whatever getting ready for this big fight and this is where you get the iconic moment of uh david patrick kelly clanging the bottles screeching for the warriors to come out and play <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which which it, i remember when this movie was on regular tv and this was one of those movies trevor um it hit regular tv i was probably i don't know maybe first second third grade somewhere around there i was pretty young and i remember it was one of those movies where like I guess the commercial was 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 on nonstop, so like everybody watched it, and then like the next day on the playground, everybody was all you could talk about is the Warriors, and um, you know, going back to uh, you know uh, R-rated movies or franchises that had toys that shouldn't have. I think I think you actually maybe if this movie would have come out a couple years later, like mid '80s. I think you could have had a pretty successful Warriors toy line if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny that the Warriors come out and play line. I'm sure you remember this too, Go, because we're we're fairly close in age. Um, this is a movie that's, like you said, it's, it's had like occasional resurgences in popularity, but there was definitely a time where saying like, Warriors, come out and play, that was like something that not everybody knew, right? And you knew right. people were cool if they got that reference, if you did it around them, you know? Exactly. So basically what happens is is they, they corner the Warriors on the beach and then like, you know... Um, David Patrick Kelly, he uh, he, you know, he has the gun, so like they're screwed. They're gonna be whatever, and then like suddenly out of nowhere, like millions of the Grand Mercy riffs show up, and like you know, they 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 they've gotten the word that it actually wasn't the Warriors, so like they know what's up. 
Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of just like a great little standoff sequence. And it, the film basically ends with the warriors walking along the beach and basically the Grand Mercy Rift swallowing up the the rogues. And, you know, obviously they're going to get their comeuppance. I don't think we actually really see, like, the rogues and David Patrick get, uh, Kelly get destroyed and killed, do we? No, it's just like the Cleon thing. Like, they they swarm around them and we hear Luther scream and we can only assume. I mean, I, I think I think it's a safe bet they're not getting out of that alive. Yeah, probably like none of them. Yeah. And I'll, and then I'll, for this ending, I'll give credit where credit is due because I'm not the biggest, I do not like the Eagles. I'm not the biggest mm-hmm. Joe Walsh fan in the world. But the In the City, the Joe Walsh song, theme song for this film that plays here is a really good song. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's it's kind of a nice ending. And, and like I was telling you... Um, I think before we start recording is um, when you watch this as a kid and you're not really keeping track because some of the the deaths and the whatever is kind of ambiguous. But like when you watch it now, you kind of realize like, yeah, it's not exactly a happy ending for the world. And it's it's not meant to feel like a happy ending. It's very it Mm -hmm. is a very somber, you know, peaceful, but somber ending. But like you realize their leader and co-founder Cleon is dead. Uh, Fox is dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ajax is in jail. I mean, it, it, probably not a too serious offense. He'll probably be out, you know, at the worst a couple months, whatever. But I mean, they definitely paid a heavy price for, for the for the the concept. Like they did nothing wrong. Like literally, yeah. just there was this assassination, and they became the fall guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a moral victory. And even you, like again, you even have that little moment too of selling into that idea when they get back. Um, Swan even kind of questions, like he looks around Coney Island and says, "This is what I was fighting all night to come back to." You know, and he yeah. starts to realize, like, "Wow, this is this is where I live." And it, they kind of insinuate that maybe him and Mercy will take off together. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I'm exactly like you, Trev. I mean, I've had this Blu-ray for quite a while. Um, I think this is probably maybe like, you know, the third time I watched the Blu-ray or so. Um, but yeah, you just always like really. You know, and I think part of it for me too is like the video game coming out, which which did get me reinterested in this this movie again. Because I always did like this movie a lot as a kid. I caught it, you know, bits and pieces of it on TV a lot as a kid. But uh, you just, you know, it kind of with the video game to me, it kind of seems like a little bit trivialized, a little hokey, whatever. But then like when you rewatch it and like you just get into it for yourself, like you realize actually how quality of a film it really is. Yeah, and you said something earlier about how like modern the opening feels, and I would I would extend that to the whole movie, and that's the thing that always impresses me. Like every time I rewatch this film, no matter what era I've watched it in, it always feels modern. Like it's there's just something about it where you could release this same movie today, I think, um, and maybe the action scenes would be just a little bit more pumped up, but overall, it just it still feels very modern. Um, I saw, I believe it was. I want to say Devin Fracci on his Twitter feed that made an interesting point about this film. And this can segue into the thing I know we want to talk about where he mentioned how this is a film that, like we said, um, you know, became a cult film kind of quickly. And for most of like the eighties and and nineties, it was just this cult film that only cool people knew about. And as you mentioned, it then had this like kind of big upswing in popularity in the early two thousands with that video game. And suddenly like warriors was like a much bigger deal. Everyone remembered it. Everyone knew about it. And then now it's kind of like faded again a little bit to where now it's again, like not very um, discussed as much. And he actually made the argument and I kind of agree that 
part of the reason for that might be that because the only prevalent version that's available now is this director's cut, yeah. which we should now get into because this is a, this is a case where I don't know how you feel about it. It really it really bums me out that this is the only version because I really do not like the director's cut very much. Right. So so a lot of times when you have director's cuts, you have a lot of scenes added back in, uh, other things shortened, sometimes things. But I guess we should describe for people who don't really know the difference, like. W- w- the difference with this, this is a very strange director's cut, I should say. Like, how would you describe the changes that they made? Well, to this it? is this is something that Walter Hill says he wanted to do from the beginning, and I'll I'll take I'll take him at his word. Um, but to sell his like the, to sell the comic book idea, he wanted the scene transitions to actually be these animated comic book panels. Um, which I assume at the time he would have had some illustrator going and and like which kind of like you know like creep show or something. Um, yeah. And that might be cool. And even if the, I wonder if I would like it more if they had actually done that. But then when he got a chance to redo it in 2005 and add these comic book transitions, all they are is they kind of do like an Instagram filter over the actual screen yeah. grabs and create this like digitized look to it. And there's a couple of moments that I think it really ruins. And in particular, the one that really bothers me is the introduction of the Baseball Furies. Yeah. Um, I think like the the tension of that moment because they actually recut that sequence so that when that group of the wanderers come up out of the subway station, they cut back to the other guys getting onto the other train. And then it cuts back to the warriors uh, in freeze frame. And then it says something like, but then the baseball furies with like three exclamation points. And <laughs> right. I think it actually says like, holy shit or something. And it's like, Oh yeah. God, it's like really ruins like the moment. <laughs> yeah. And there's also, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Cause I, especially with that scene in particular, uh, I was I looked up some like YouTube comparisons and I looked up there was some like old like shitty footage of like the non director's cut version of that on mm-hmm. YouTube and I was just kind of like yeah I'm kind of like the thing to me that kills I mean just these these whatever you I don't know I I guess illustrations is what you call them because they're not animations but they they they're so jarringly and the rest of, don't get me wrong like I was saying I was praising the Blu-ray the rest of the movie looks. Um, you know, it looks like vintage film stock. Don't get me wrong, but it's 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 like so high quality that like the film looks a little newer than what it really is. But at the same time, even with that, like these when they put in these frames, like it just looks like the it doesn't. Yeah, it, it's I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It looks like some like two thousand two internet flash animation type cartoon mm-hmm. bullshit. Mm-hmm. And like, there's really like the section at the beginning, like that starts the movie like i love the way the movie really starts out with like the um the wonder wheel shot and the music and stuff now it starts out with like this this like oh uh, yeah this cheesy like, opening yeah the che- like the opening it's like it's like because how we said sorry i'm not a loss for words of this to how to describe this but like it was based on the the greek stories and it's like yeah. this actually has an intro about the greeks and like yeah. the fighting and then like it shows like the comic book panels and i think the thing that's even more jarring to me about this trev is like i'm 99.9 percent sure that walter hill does the narration for this uh, yeah i'm pretty sure that is his voice <laughs> it sounds like, just like, like yeah it's i'm pretty sure it's him and then even like the way they like, I get it, I guess. Like, he wants to draw this, like, parallel. But it's even sloppy how it does it because it's, like, it tells this, it tells that story about the, the Greek army. And it, it basically says – I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. But it really is this this corny. It's like, well, that was, like, a tough gang. And now here's a story about another one. It's like, oh, God. Yeah. Like, why does that need to be there? I mean, the, the little transitions in between, I agree with you. Like, they don't help. They're kind of whatever. So, like, when I was watching this the other night, 
I was like I said, I you know this movie always creeps up on you. I was into it way more than I would ever uh, would expect, and then like I was blown away by the the picture quality of the Blu-ray, and it was just like every time every time you hit one of these transitions, like it kind of pulls you out of the movie, mm-hmm. and then like it's over and the movie restarts, and it's and I mean I don't want to like bitch and bitch and bitch because they they are super short and there's like maybe only five or six of them throughout the movie. But they just feel out of place. Like it just feels like somebody went back and fucked with the old movie. Yeah, it really is a matter of like it's 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 the Lucas thing a little bit again, right? Where like okay, I'm sure there's some people don't mind it, and it, it's I guess it's his preferred vision. But couldn't they at least just put both cuts on the blue so yeah. you had your choice? You know. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, it's just to me, like I said, like I don't really like the whatever. To, to, it's really the the chunk at the beginning, the the Greek whatever, and it's just really weird too because it's like. I wish they would have spent a little more money to do it right. Um, just that animation style. Because, like, recently I was watching some uh, parts of Creepshow 2 on Blu-ray. And, uh, like, when it gets to those animated sections, like, like animation and stuff of that era was so cool. Like mm-hmm. I like you said, if they would have done it back then and they would have done some hand-drawn animation and you would have had, like, you know, a hand-drawn animation of, like, uh, Swan transitioned into Michael Beck's face. And so, like, I think it would have been cool. Like, I, mm-hmm. you know, like, I think it would have worked, in all honesty. But this, just the art style, like, like it's a very iffy concept to, to redo it years later. But even then, if you were going to redo it, it just should have been done in a more class. It should have been actually done in, like, a comic book style. Because I don't know about yeah. you, Trevor, but, but to me, these don't even look like comic book illustrations to me. No, they don't. That's the thing. Is it, it, you're, you're, dead, you're dead right. It feels like when they did this Blu-ray, Walter Hill probably put up a stink about this. And they, they indulged him to a degree. But they're like, we're not going to put too much money into this. You know, right. we'll let you do your little comic book thing. But here's how you're going to do it. And he just went along with it. But, yeah, if they put some thought into it and, and drawn out some stuff. Because really, like I said, it's just it really is a matter of pacing. And, and um because there's absurd moments like the baseball furious one is like this and then the end even when they're on the beach is like this where yeah. they'll take what would have been four shots that would play out in the film and they just put them all on the screen at once as like four panels um and it just kind of really throws off the pace yeah it's it's very odd and again like don't get me wrong i'll take this version on blu-ray uh over no version on blu-ray yeah, I mean, I've heard. I haven't looked into it. Uh, I read that you can watch an HD version of the theatrical cut on some streaming services to rent, but I haven't really looked into that. Um, I do know if if you if you want an HD version of the theatrical cut, there is a bootleg Blu-ray of it floating around out there that's got a lot of bonus features on it and stuff. Um, not too hard to find, yeah. but uh, I don't know. I don't know if there if we'll ever see like an official one because I don't know if Paramount still gives a crap about this movie or not. So yeah, I I mean. Because of pandemic times, Paramount the last few years had really like was kind of like done with home video. Like they're yeah. like they really were like no catalog recently. And recently, like pretty much I say starting this year, and then it's really kind of ramped up since the pandemic happened. And a, a lot of studios are doing this too because they need some money in the coffers. Um, they have been releasing a lot of stuff in Blu-ray for the first time, and like i'm hoping that that you know they're doing it out of necessity right now because they just need some kind of cash flow coming in but i hope that they really whoever runs their home video department you know i hope this is a a upswing for paramount and that they can continue this and they see it's a good revenue stream and yeah because i i think if you i think even if you like really kind of 
um, they, they have a, uh, I'm blanking on the, I think it's called Paramount Presents, and they're re-releasing in special editions some movies that have already released on Blu-ray, but also some stuff to, for the first time ever. Like, they did Flashdance, which has been out before, but then they also did Pretty in Pink, first time on Blu-ray. It's selling really good. It's actually a lot of places had it out of stock. If they can do a Paramount Presents version of The Warriors with two disc, whatever, both cuts in it, like, I actually think that would be, like, really big right now. Because as much as this resurgence was in 06, 07, whenever this came out, uh, I, th- I think I think it's the, the market's time for it, right? And pr- particularly the home video market, with it being so collector-based at this point, I think you yeah. just could uh, sell some real good copies. Yeah, well, I guess we can wrap it up with Sammy saying, like, the one thing that I thought would maybe save it and get another release of it, um, which didn't happen. This is what it really shocks me that this is a film that has not had a remake yet. Yeah. Um, particularly in the early 2000s when Hollywood was just going remake crazy, I thought for sure this would have this would have been one. And, and sure enough, if you look into it, um, around 2005, Tony Scott was working on a remake, um, which he was said was going to be set in modern day New York with all new gangs. Um, after he passed, uh, Mark Neveldine of Neveldine Taylor uh, talked about being interested in a remake. Um, and then just the most recent iteration that came pretty close to happening, I guess, is in 2016, the Russo brothers actually signed a deal with Hulu and Paramount Television to do The Warriors as a TV series. Wow. Um, but here we are in 2020 with no progress made on that. Yeah. So I'm guessing it's just one of those projects that fell off the wayside. But I, this is actually one, I don't know how you feel, good. I know you're not the biggest remake proponent in the world, but this is one I actually think kind of should be remade because it's not like it would take anything away i actually back in the early 2000s when that first resurgence first came up i was really all for the idea of doing one of those kind of remakes that's half remake half sequel and even getting like michael beck and and james remar to kind of come back as maybe like the fathers of the of the new warrior members you know but just playing the same characters older um but I, I don't know if you'd still do that now, but I, I don't think there's any reason a remake of this couldn't work, uh, especially if you get like the right directors. Like if you get the John Wick guys or, um, you know, even, I do think Neville Dean Taylor might might do something cool with it um, and even kind of bring in maybe some more like do like a martial arts gang and get some of the cool like, you know, like Gareth Evans kind of choreographers and stuff and actors to come in and do some sequences. Uh, this could definitely be. Because, man, you look at this movie, If this, I feel like if the Warriors came out today, it would almost be like a studio would be looking at this like, ooh, we could do the Warriors. And then we could do the Baseball Fury spinoff film. You know, Lizzie's <laughs> right, can get their own movie. This is like a cinematic universe waiting to happen. I I, I would be open minded to it. Uh, like you said, all those those previous attempts at a remake. I remember when all that was kind of like bopping around, and like I really, I really wasn't for. It. Like I never heard much out of those. That sounded too. I mean, I would say I would totally be down for a Tony Scott version, but that never mm-hmm. happened. And all the other versions that I remember coming. I want to say I thought I heard something about either John Chu or maybe also at some other point, John Singleton, different directors who had some relationships with Paramount, they were kind of circling, but nothing kind of, kind of like how you always hear those escape from New York remake rumors. The Warriors was like that for a couple years too. I would be down for it. And I would totally be down for another kind of like over the top, whatever. Cause like one thing that bothers me about a lot of these remakes, they go, Oh, we're updating it. And then like you watch the movie and it's like almost like they stole the original script and just put cell phones in it. Like I, I hate that, but I think I think you could go like either in a direction that would be like hyper violent, like a John Wick, or you could like go like I would actually be down for more like of a dramatic take with like literally it being like a hundred percent kind of like real with like you yeah know. that's what I was thinking too like the idea um, of like the TV show approach was interesting to me because I kind of wondered if by extending the the runtime to that degree, if that would allow them to get into more of what they had to drop from the book. But also thinking like even like, I wonder if you, let's say it's like what, 
eight episodes, nine episodes, you could just do that real time, right? Like here's their entire yeah. journey through the night as like one season of TV. Well, I think it'd also be kind of cool too if you could do it where um, the the whole first season is pretty much like you know like especially if you were to do like the 13 episode thing if you could do like maybe like the first nine episodes like just about like the actual like you know day-to-day life of the war of the warriors and what they're going through and then like maybe have like the last three episodes be the recreation of the movie and then you then you could like you said like with the guys who die and stuff you could pick up season two being like the reformation of the gang and like you know who stays who goes what happens you know what i mean yeah but yeah, I, also what, just one last little nugget I want to drop about the Warriors, Trev. I don't know if you've seen this. It was from like a couple years ago on like one of the anniversaries. It wasn't like way back when the video game came out. It's more recent, but there's some Rolling Stone videos on YouTube of like basically like a Warriors uh, reunion, and it's like uh, I think it's titled "The Warriors One Last Ride" or something like that. And it's basically like the guys and like like uh, there's like three. There, I think they have like four or five of them. I think it's like Michael Beck. I, th- I think the guy who played Fox, and then I'm pretty sure the guy who played Cleon, and I think also the guy who played Cochise. And it's kind of just like this cool video of them on the subway in their vest, you know, at the ages that they are now, and like kind of mm-hmm. looking tough and some music. And then like basically they get off the subway and like they're at basically like a fan convention that was at Coney Island and interacting with the fans and stuff. It's pretty cool. But just seeing those guys back together again, <laughs> I don't know. Remar, Remar was busy, huh? Remar was busy. <laughs> but yeah. On, a, on, the, on the Michael Beck scale, are you, what are you, a Warriors guy, a Xanadu guy, or a Megaforce guy? Uh, definitely Warriors. Um, (laughs) surprisingly or not, even though Megaforce was always in like the back of the comic books and shit I had at the time, I never saw it. And Xanadu, um, I, it needs to be the right situation, but, uh, I've, I've caught some Xanadu on, uh, movie channels within the last year or two. And like it, it did, it wasn't doing that much for me to be honest. Yeah, with it's you. just interesting that he went right from the Warriors to that. Like right. that's definitely it's kind of a smart move, right? You look at that as like that's like a very much an actor who's who's very aware of like I'm not going to get typecast. Yeah. Well, I guess we should briefly mention. I mean, we've gone on and on about the Warriors, but like I guess we should briefly mention that basically when it was released, because it was a like, quote oh, yeah, yeah. gang film, yeah. there was violence at the screens with gangs. I mean, this always happens with these type of movies. It happened also in the '90s with New Jack City. So, like, even though the movie was, like, doing well financially, uh, like, okay, budget was $4 million, the box office was $22.5 million. It actually could have made, like, way more. Yep. Uh, but, unfortunately, Paramount, kind of like what happened with uh, Stanley Kubrick and Clockwork Orange, uh, you know, problem, things were happening in theaters, and, you know, they, 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 they basically, first they decreased the marketing, and eventually they were like, oh, this problem's not going away, so we have to basically pull it from theaters is what happened. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why, like you said, like it could have had a much bigger pop cultural impact, and that's kind of why it became a cult film because its uh, theatrical life was cut short. Exactly. So yeah, so that's it for the Warriors, and I guess now we should uh, grease our hair up and put our <laughs> put <laughs> go, our, our, yeah. uh, our go back in time, but forward in time release wise. This is yeah. a film that came out just a little bit later. Warriors came out in February of '79. The Wanderers comes out in July of '79. Right. Um, the Wanderer is based on a novel by. Uh, Richard Price and directed by Philip Kaufman, written by him and his wife. Um, very different kind of film, but uh, still about gangs. This is one that actually takes place in 1963 and is kind of more of a nostalgic look back at uh, the life of an Italian American gang known as the Wanderers uh, uh, living in the Bronx at that time. And they're kind of like uh, 
you were just talking about how like the, this idea of like the warriors, like what their everyday life is like. This is kind of what that movie would be, I suppose, showing yeah. just like what is life like to be in the Wanderers. There are a couple sequences we'll talk about in this film that are warriors esque, but overall, it's really just uh, here's what it's like to be in this this teen gang back then. Um, oh, we say teen gang. We should mention all the actors look thirty five. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like one thing that's interesting where like like i was telling you like it's just funny to me that that there was this you know because these were the main two projects between the warriors and the wonders you know these other ones were kind of peripheral but these are the main two that were you know trying to get to the box office the quickest and all that kind of stuff like i said like two totally completely different movies the warriors mm-hmm. is more of like an action you know, peace and like the wonders is definitely more like a coming of age drama. I mean, it's just totally yeah. coming of age drama. Like, like it's just weird that the, I mean, the movie industry still does weird shit, but like, it's just weird to me that there was like a panic to get these films out. But, mm-hmm. um, this is the, the, should be the debut of, uh, Ken wall. They said he was, uh, yeah, I think, I think everybody in this is like their first film, I think, yeah. or all the, like all the main uh, wanderers. Yeah. Yeah. He, they, they claimed he was on his way uh, at a job at a pizzeria when they called him to come audition. So <laughs> that, that tells you. So like, basically this is like, I guess I, the opening scene is kind of strange to this movie. So like you basically have this guy, Turkey. Who's got his 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 head shaved, but he's wearing a wanderer's jacket. So he's part of the wanderers, but he's shaved his head and he's going down to a corner because he wants to meet up with this kind of like more legit. Because the wanderers are actually a high school. It's really more of a social club than a gang. They yeah. do. They we do. See, have, there's a lot of members. Yeah, a lot. And it's like you kind of don't see how many members there are at first, but like, but like, yeah, because like there's even background members that you never really never have any dialogue. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like there's so no, many. There's, a, there's just like there's one sequence where they're walking through the streets and people keep uh, more members keep jumping out, and that's when you realize like, wow, this gang is gigantic. But right. you only focus on about four or five of them. Yeah. So Turkey, he's got his head shaved, freshly shaved. He's going down to the corner to meet up with the Baldies, who are like this actual like legit gang of like you know they're 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 above high school age, whatever. You know they're older, probably in their early twenties maybe mid 20s some of them so he wants to go join the baldies in the uh joey who's like kind of like the pipsqueak of the wanderers he he tries to stop him saying like you don't want to get mixed up with those guys and he and turkey's explaining hey you know we're gonna be out of high school soon and you can't be a wanderer once you're out of high school so i need a new gang to join and this kind of like this subplot kind of becomes like the crux of the first half of the movie wouldn't you say Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, um, just to instantly kind of sell this idea of there being different gangs, different hierarchies in New York. Um, interestingly enough, for the kind of people who probably listen to this show, the leader of the Baldies is played by uh, Dynamo from The Running Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I knew I knew him from somewhere. I yeah. gotta I gotta say though, uh, okay, Turkey, who is who's played by uh, uh, actor named Alan Rosenberg. I like I didn't really recognize this guy from like anything else, but this guy, his his voice, his mannerisms. They I don't know if it was just from this movie, but this guy was so burned into my brain. Like Turkey just like steals the show. Like he's super annoying character, but it's just like man, the energy that this guy puts out on screen <laughs> when he's in the scenes. You know what I mean? It's funny if you look him up on Wikipedia. One interesting bit of uh, information about him: first of all, he was married to Mark Helgenberger for a while, yeah. so good yeah. for him. But also, he was the voice of Boba Fett on NPR's adaptation of Empire Strikes Back. Wow. And I'm just picturing that voice coming out of Boba <laughs> Fett. Turkey. <laughs> so yeah, so basically, what happens is 
Turkey goes down to the corner. Joey's like, hey, you don't want to whatever. You know, these guys are like, basically the line he does is they're a bunch of pricks with ears. And, of course, the Baldies hear this. And this is where we're kind of like introduced to the another scene stealer, wouldn't you say, Trev? The, the great, I almost said late great, but thankfully that's not the case. But the great, I guess, now retired uh, Linda Manns. Yeah, Linda Manns as Pee Wee, which is, she's actually the very tiny, diminutive girlfriend of uh, of Terror, the leader. Um, but yeah, we, we talked about Linda Manns the last time I was on this show, um, yeah. in uh, her uh, her work in uh, the Dennis Hopper film, Into the Blue. But uh, yeah, one of her other three roles this time. So yeah, so like, so Terror and Pee Wee are a couple. Mm-hmm. And Which visually is very interesting. Yeah, which I think that's kind of like the way they the went that way, but like... I actually, I actually uh, got my fiance to watch this movie with me because um, she likes stuff of the period, the music, and you know everything like that. And I posed this question to her, and I'm going to ask you to, Trev, what do you think is the deal with Pee Wee? Is is Pee Wee just a really short woman, or is Pee Wee like a little kid that's dating this man who's ahead of a gang? Um, I kind of read Pee Wee as being. Like not necessarily of age. I think she. I was probably reading her as like sixteen, seventeen, and he's definitely an older, older than that, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, like a, not a, you know a problematic situation. But the thing is, the movie, the movie sells them as a pretty like loving couple, right? right. Like their their relationship feels very genuine, and she really does care about him. Yeah, it's like she's very emotional, and he's kind of like a big dumb lug who's always like screwing up and kind of hurting her feelings and whining. And he always, you know, like you said, like he's always there to control her and picks her up like a doll baby, pretty much. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, you know, Pee Wee is like kind of the instigator, you know, like hey, what did you say and all this kind of shit, and like the gang, you know. So like they're they they're going to stomp uh, Joey and Turkey. Even though Turkey wants to join them, like, they kind of take Turkey, the Baldies kind of take Turkey as a joke, like, they, you know, whatever, they're like, hey, if this this, this idiot, you know, we can trick him into doing shit for us, or make a fool of him, we will, whatever. So, basically, you get this great foot chase, uh, and, like, this is where we're introduced to Richie, who's having sex with his girlfriend, very, very, uh... Typical, I think, of, of this type of movie scene where, like, the guy is, like, the girl's, like, trying to hold out and not go all the way, but the guy's pressuring and pressuring. <laughs> yeah. Richie is the, the Ken Wall character. Would you would yeah. you call him the lead of this film? I mean, is there a lead? And if I mean, if so, it's him, right? It's it's very much, okay, it's, yeah, because I, I was kind of wrestling with this myself when I was watching it again. Uh, he's, um... I would say he's the lead of the film, even though it's an ensemble, and it and it and I say other characters uh, get almost equal screen time and whatnot. But I would say he was the lead just because he has the biggest character arc and kind of the the majority of the emotion that the film ends on is based around his character arc. So yeah, it's interesting because like Wikipedia calls him the leader of the Wanderers, but I don't think the film ever like sells that point. It never no. really feels like this is a gang that has that kind of like. Um, hierarchy to it, right? He doesn't right. boss them around or anything. It's they all feel fairly equal, right? So basically, the the wanderers. I keep I keep mixing up. I keep wanting to say the warriors because we just said the warriors a million times. But the wanderers, they have the signal like they just do a whistle. So when you like you're running down the street or you're out on the street, and uh, and whenever there's a wanderer uh, in trouble, all you have to do is whistle and everybody in their apartments, cause everybody lives in apartments, you know, this is like the middle of the city where these guys live. They all come running down the steps, come to help you. So like basically, yeah, like Ken Wall has to, you know, 
whatever, stop having sex, pull his pants up, run out to help Joey and Turkey. And um, I can't remember, was there any of the other guys that made it down, or was it just them three during this? I, th- I think it, I think there's that other blonde guy whose name I can never remember. Um, yeah, yeah, because he's like a really like background character until like yeah. later in the movie, all of a sudden he starts showing up more, yeah. So like they basically you know they go down and they they they're getting chased because because I mean there's like literally when you say there's probably at this point there's probably about twenty members of the Baldies chasing oh those yeah three yeah or they're four guys. they're very outnumbered yeah yeah so they they definitely get to uh, you know cornered in this alleyway terror grabs uh, Joey and throws him up against the wall and then like. Almost like Antonio Banderas in Desperado, a shadow <laughs> emerges, <laughs> a figure emerges from the shadows, and just this big, uh, you know, not big and fat the way Terror is, but just big, tall, solid uh, kid says, you know, kind of like, hey, yo, you know, leave the little kid alone. And then, like, he joins the fight, and he just starts fucking wiping the floor with all the baldies. And he just kind of, you know, at the end, they're like, oh, thanks for helping us. And he kind of, his thing is like, yeah, I don't like to see big guys picking on little guys. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So basically, like, I thought, so this character, this big guy that comes and helps him, he ends up doing, his uh, name ends up being Perry. And he's the new kid that lives across the hallway from Joey. Um, I thought this was going to be more of like a subplot of them convincing him. Because like right off the bat, you know, Joey runs into him again at the apartment building. He kind of says, hey, you should hang out with us. We're the the Wanderers and all that. I thought this was going to be like a little more of a subplot of like them kind of wooing Perry to come into the gang. But he pretty much just comes in right away, wouldn't you say? Yeah, they, he he joins pretty quickly. I mean, they they kind of sell the idea to him at the on his like first day of school. Like, you need to be in one of these gangs, and that's when they start yeah. walking in the hall and pointing out all the different gangs to him. And that's where we get into like our warriors esque. Like, look how many gangs there are, uh, which will come into right. play later. But yeah, he he joins up pretty quickly. Yeah, and uh, so and Perry, for the record, is my is probably my favorite character in the. In the oh film. yeah, for sure, for sure. My mine too. Uh, like it's, it, like like. <laughs> I don't know, this is kind of like a funny thing to say, but like, as I'm talking about Richie being the lead, it's like you want to follow Richie, you know, especially now we're watching this because it's like very early Ken Wall and like he's very uh, rough around the edges as an actor in this movie, but he already kind of has the, the star appeal, I would say. But at the same time, like, the character... And I like this about the movie. This isn't a criticism, but the character is kind of like so boneheaded and kind of like screwing things up and kind of like you know screwing things over which is like realistic for a young person whatever that like the person that you like you said the person you really want to follow and who's like a good solid person and has like the more interesting backstory or whatnot is perry i would say yeah yeah he's even got like kind of the more tragic backstory and everything when you find out about his like you know his mom uh and everything so and he says he's just more like a more solid dude and really that whole like the perry joey relationship really is kind of more the heart of the film right they kind of remind me of those two like the the dogs from the looney tunes the one who's like the little scrappy one who's just following around the big one yeah but that's a that's a dynamic that always works right the, the big guy and his like little sidekick yeah so I don't know if I skip past anything you want to talk about. Let me know, Chad. But like, I don't know how much. This is, this is a harder one to talk about than yeah. the Warriors because it's yeah, not it a straight ahead film. It really is like a collection of scenes, you know. Right, like kind right. of there's Vignettes. a there is a there's some through lines, but yeah. So even like um, I don't know if you if you know this uh, goat, but like the the novel actually was like kind of stylized as a ser- as like a series of short stories, all focusing on different members of this gang, and so it was really up to Coffin and his wife to kind of 
form some kind of narrative out of that. Um, but that's why the film kind of feels the way it does, because it's really just pulling these these vignettes and playing them out and then trying to find certain little through lines. Yeah, that, that, that definitely makes more sense. I didn't know that, but that definitely makes more sense. And uh, just for some context, because we said this is a, gr- a coming-of-age story, it definitely takes place during these guys' senior year of high school. But to, to nail it down, because we don't really see... We don't really see, like, the seasons change the way you do a lot of these high school movies in terms of, like, here's the Halloween scene, here's the Christmas scene. We don't say that. I would say this probably pretty much happens, this whole movie, wouldn't you say, Trev, happens within a two- to three-month time span? Yeah, I'd say that probably sounds about right. There's not a, there's definitely not a huge uh, span of time, but the, the storyline with Richie and his girlfriend obviously insinuates some, like, passage of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't for that that storyline, like it almost could be a movie that happened in a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um, so basically, like uh, we we kind of roll into a scene. One scene I did want to talk about was there's a scene where the Baldies uh, catch up with um, with uh, Joey, Turkey, and Richie. Uh, you know, Perry's not with them to bail them out this time, so they're going to have their revenge. And it's kind of funny because they kind of catch them and they're going to do something to them. They catch them in this park with a bridge. They take them to this bridge. And, like, Turkey, even though he's still in the Wanderers and he's, like, wearing the jacket, he totally starts doing the bidding of terror. And basically, like, they hang, they pull these guys' pants down. And, like, the joke is that, um, well, they don't know it's a joke. But the thing is, you're, you're, you're led to believe that they're going to rip the guy's actual penises off. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, like, it's a very mean-spirited prank, because right. it's, it's pretty believable. Yeah, and so they basically have, like, these rocks, and with these pieces of twine, and, and they make Turkey, like, crawl on the other side of, like, the railing there, and it's his job to, you know, I guess, take out his friend's penises and type. So I thought this was interesting. As mean as the Baldies were, they weren't going to touch this guy's dogs. <laughs> So they and I have to say, like it was at that moment because before then I was kind of like, oh, Turkey's so annoying, he's whatever, but he's like the the lovable one of the group, the screw up that you know you can't stand. He always gets on your nerves, whatever. But you know he's still part of the gang. It was at this point where I started having a strong dislike for Turkey because he he willingly turned on his friends big time, and you know, and even he's like, oh, do I gotta do this terror? And he's like, yeah, you gotta do it if you want to join the Baldies, whatever. So, yeah, he ties the, the ropes around the guy's penises. They throw the rocks off the bridge. But it turns out, here's where the joke is, is the strings are actually... And I don't even know if these rocks, in all honesty, were, were really large enough to rip somebody's member off. But, uh, yeah, basically the Baldies made the ropes long enough to where the rocks just hit and they didn't really tug on anything. The the, yeah. the, the rope was too long. And, uh, you know, and, and you know, it's all in good fun. They all have a laugh. And, like, you know, Joey and Richie are kind of sitting there having heart attacks. And they're like, oh, my God. But, but their hands are tied behind their back. So they're just kind of stuck naked in this park. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, we never uh, really see the resolution of that. <laughs> no, like, the, that's what you said. You know, it's almost like little, like, scenes, vignettes. It just kind of jumps from one thing to the next. And We should talk about the – there's yeah, there are certain scenes I think we should definitely hit on. And I, it doesn't, I don't know if it matters if we go in order. But, like, this, the, the one really important scene I want to hit on for a couple reasons because it leads to the big centerpiece of the film is earlier in the film there's a moment in the classroom uh, with, uh, where, the, like, most of the Wanderers are in one this one class with a, a bunch of other members of the African-American gang in the school called the Dell Bombers. And, uh, man, we should talk about this teacher who I don't – this teacher oh. would not – he would not fly today. Uh, 
Well, yeah, <laughs> he gets the class involved in activity. I, I guess he's trying to make a point about how we're all the same, right. but he goes about it in like the worst way possible in a in a room just like filled with like machismo and, yeah. you know, kind of like male anxiousness and everything and and racist undercurrents. He asks everyone to start kind of calling out different racial slurs for all the ethnic groups in the classroom. And yeah. uh, it, it goes about as well as you expect. And it eventually leads to a big confrontation between the Wanderers and the Dell Bomber. And that really becomes like the through line through the film because it's essentially the the Wanderers are trying to find a way to kind of win this 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 war against the Dell Bombers now and are kind of going to other gangs asking for their help. No one wants to help them. And that causes Richie to actually go to the father of his girlfriend, who we find out is kind of like a little like mid-level uh, small-time mafia boss right. who runs this bowling alley. And uh, the mafia, uh, his little gang, agrees to kind of help the wanderers in this in this, uh, you know, this brouhaha with the Dell bombers. Yeah, it, it's I have to say, like, this movie throws you some curveball sometimes. And like, I was into this scene because when the teacher is like, OK, like, you know, because because it's it's I don't know really what this means, but it's supposedly brotherhood week at the school, which is like yeah. some type of unity. So like the teacher is like. I'm going to write, he's like, hey, you know, you black guys, you probably got some names for the Italian guys. Because at first he does a roll call. How many people are in a black? How many people are in Italian? Whatever. And it's pretty much 50-50, half black guys, half Italian guys. And, like, yeah, he starts writing on the board all the racial slurs. Like, what are the racial slurs? And blah, blah. I thought that, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I thought this guy was going to go somewhere really profound with this. Yeah, you know, like, I was just wondering why, you watch the scene and since it never goes, and you're like, where was he going with this? Yeah. Like, what was his final point? Yeah, and, and like, I totally, like, I totally thought it was going to go somewhere, and all it really does is, um, you know, start a race war, for the most part. I mean, literally, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's very weird. And, um, I, I guess we should say the, um, the leader of the Dell Bombers, I always blank on this guy's name. I always call him Leon, but it's not Leon. It's the other guy that was in V. Oh, man. Do you know the actor I'm talking about? Like, he's super recognizable, the leader of the Dell Bombers, the tall, skinny guy. Um, is, it, um, is it Michael Wright? I think it might be. Because I'm even, like, looking at the the listing of the thing. Yeah, it's Michael Wright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael on, yeah, he's Wright. He's yeah. in V, yeah. Yeah, the principal, V. Oh, he's great in the principal playing the villain, too. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love Michael Wright. I don't know. Oh, what I know, you know what? I never even occurred to me that that's that same guy. Yeah. yeah, he's like a real evil villain in the principal. Yeah, but yeah, so it's just pretty much like, and like that's like, you know, as terms as far as like the actual gang gang stuff, like that's really like the whole crux of the movie is like they got this intense rivalry with the Dell Bombers, and like you said, they're trying to get other gangs to come in, and nobody really wants to fight with the the Dell Bombers and stuff. Um, it, it, it's kind of funny though because like i said the movie throws you some curveballs the dell bombers don't end up really being the true enemies of the movie <laughs> like no so we should talk about that too because the the there's so both this storyline plays into the two scenes that are most reminiscent of the warriors um so there's one where the guys are out just kind of driving around and they end up getting they end up getting lost uh and they end up uh in the territory of an irish american gang called the ducky boys this is a gang that I know from like the research I've done. This was like uh, definitely a very real gang um, that Richard Price was uh, kind of aware of growing up and put into the book. And they are kind of the real scary villains of the film. And they actually, um, you know, it's even and it's cinematically, it gets a little stylized here because when they end up in their territory, it's all like, you know, the ground is covered in mist. It's like yeah. a very 
abandoned part of town and very scary. And then the Ducky Boys just suddenly like swarm their car and start attacking them. Perry's arm actually gets broken. They uh, so they be, they're kind of like the um, the threat that is kind of hovering over this film. They end up having this like encounter with uh, with Turkey later, which I don't know if you want to spoil that or not. But uh, and then we'll eventually I'm sure we'll talk about the big centerpiece scene. But. Yeah. So like pr- like pretty much like this. Even the first run in for the Ducky Boys. Like I'm not going to criticize this. Like call this out as a criticism of of the movie because I actually like these scenes. But whenever they run into the Ducky Boys, you're suddenly in a completely different movie. Yeah. Yeah, it is true. It's 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 interesting. Like I've 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 wrestled with that myself. Like I, I like I said, I like the scenes. They are the they are the only scenes that aren't very realistic. And I almost wonder if that's kind of the point because I feel like Kaufman is too intelligent of a filmmaker to not realize that. And it's almost like when you get into those sequences, it almost like reaches this like mythic level, right? right. And I think that's kind of what he's what he's aiming for. Well, also too with the horror movie music and the way they're constantly swarming, like. Kind of like, you know, the, the first scene of them, and, and then when they come back later, you know, the first scene or so, I was just kind of like, oh, like why is this going so over the top in a movie that's pretty, like, reserved, you know? But looking back on it, like, once the movie wrapped up and I was thinking about the movie and all that, I was like, I kind of almost think it's almost meant to be more impressionistic in terms of the Wanderers really aren't a real gang. They're not tough. They're not, where the Ducky Boys are, like, 100% legit. Because even the Baldies, even though they're way scary to the Wanderers, I don't know how tough the Baldies are compared to, like, the Ducky Boys, you know? Well, no, you have to you have to sell the Ducky Boys as being very scary because for like the big, I guess we should just talk about. It. We can come back to some of the other subplots, yeah, but yeah. where this all heads is so the the what the what the uh, the mafia eventually does to kind of settle this this feud between the Wanderers and the Dell Bombers is sets up a football game with them. Right. Um, and so during the football game, uh, the Ducky Boys appear. So if anyone like this is the scene, I think the Wanderers is most known for for probably yeah. for, for good reason. Um, but during the game, suddenly members of the Ducky Boys just start kind of showing up and surrounding the field, and the game kind of just stops. And the the Wanderers and the Dell Bombers are kind of forced to f- create this kind of like alliance now to say like, oh, we're you know we're we're about to get attacked by the Ducky Boys, and that's the point where some other gangs join in, including we see the Wongs, which is like the Asian gang. They come and, and join in, even though they'd earlier said they didn't want to be involved in this whole this whole gang war. But this turns into this like gigantic brawl that's definitely like the action set piece of the film, and it's right. it's pretty awesome. I love this sequence. I've watched this sequence more than I've watched the movie. I go back and <laughs> yeah. watch this scene a lot. Well, I really like the whole football game too, because like the Wanderers are there in like their shitty like homemade football outfits yeah, and shit. Like, wearing jeans and yeah. yeah, yeah, wearing jeans, and it's 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 really great too because like the Dell Bombers come in like first like they're like oh they're not going to show up, nobody's here, whatever. And they they have a um, like a little kid come out with a with a with a it's not a boombox it's really like a tiny radio but he starts playing music and then like here comes in like the full like basically the Dell Bombers they basically have like their own majorettes cheerleaders they come in mm-hmm. like they got like I wouldn't even say high school uniforms they almost got like professional of that time professional level uniforms it's a huge production and I love the whole football scene and then like yeah with the brawl and I guess because it. F- figures into the brawl so much we got to touch on joey's dad like this is like a really weird kind of it's not weird but it's it, it's 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 strange the way it plays out through the rest of the movie so basically the backstory of perry's mom is he kind of covers for for a while saying she has high blood pressure that's why she can never leave the apartment but the truth is she's like a a terrible debilitating drunk 
And uh, Joey's dad is like this big bully guy. This guy is like huge. He's tall. I wasn't familiar with this actor, but like this guy could have been like a Charles Bronson, man. Like this guy is mm-hmm. big and he's older. He's I'd say he's probably mid to late 40s, but this guy is just built, man. I mean, not in like the steroid way that you see like Stallone and all these guys now, but just functional, like huge muscles, big barrel chest. Like this guy was fucking scary. And so we kind of get into the subplot of, uh, you know, Joey hates his dad because his dad is like this bully asshole. His mom is uh, ironically played by Olympia Dukakis, who kind of just sits around with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and making dinner. (laughs) She doesn't do much. But um, basically, Joey's dad, like in the middle of the night or whenever, he he goes across the hallway with a bottle of booze and, you know, gives it to Perry's mom. And, you know, they basically have sex or whatever. And so, like, it's kind of like... I don't know how much Joey really wanted, like, the whatever approval of his dad. But Joey's dad shows up to the um, to the football game and to actually watch him, even though he shit talks him all the time. And then and then Joey's dad getting involved with the, the Ducky Boy, you know, because once the Ducky Boys come to brawl, Joey's dad is all about it. Like, he can't wait just to, you know, knock some heads together. Mm-hmm. And Joey's dad is, the way it played to me, Trev, is Joey's dad is a big giant like fucking steroided out charles bronson type he's kind of the guy who turns the the tide in the brawl wouldn't you say i mean yeah he's definitely like a, a real boon to them because they show him like destroying like a lot of the ducky boys i even love the moment where when he decides to get involved in the brawl he just like flat out like punches a bench and breaks it yeah. to like bring his like big piece of wood onto the field and then there's like a weird scene too um Towards the, when the when the brawl ends and the ducky, I should say the ducky boy is like I really like the guy who plays like the lead guy. He it's not him, but he reminds me of that Justin Lewis guy who was in Prom Night to Mary Lou, like the little <laughs> short stubby guy. But anyway, like there's a scene where like uh, you know they're all clearing out and uh, Joey's dad is like stuck in some type of like roid rage flashback. Like he's going crazy and Joey like runs up to him like Yeah, we did it, we beat him, and he totally just like punches Joey in the gut and like drops him to the ground and he and he's still going nuts and just basically like ah, ah, ah. and like he totally doesn't even realize he laid his own sound out and like i thought this was going to have like a much more i mean it does affect the ending of the movie but like it's just weird that that moment happens and there's not like a whole lot of dramatic fallout see afterwards. i actually i i read that a little differently i read it like he definitely does know that he punched his own son like mm. i always took it like that's him like taking out his frustration on this son that he's like embarrassed about and like yeah. isn't it isn't as manly as he wished he was yeah and it's it's not even like that Joey's that much of a wimp. He's just a short guy, you know. What I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, because Joey's actually like show like Joey's like you know um, the the team is losing, but it's not like Joey's like not even he's he's a decent player, you know, and yeah. like he's he's got this gang, he's got a lot of friends. He's it's not like he's a complete loser or anything. Like you said, no. it's just his dad has these like crazy expectations of him. Yeah. So there's basically jumping back a little bit. There's kind of this this subplot with uh, the, the Richie plot. Yeah, yeah R- Richie. He, um, you know, he's going with this girl Desi, who's having sex with, and then and she's kind of just like more of his world, you know, Italian family, whatever. But but he meets this girl. Uh, well, well. I don't, I don't know how do you explain elbow tit in this day and age uh, yeah i mean so it's they they have a game that they proudly call elbow tit which is yeah. literally just waiting on corners and and bumping into girls chests with their elbows to then and then as they apologize they kind of cop more of a feel yeah yeah so they do that and one of the girls richie does it too is um is uh turns out to be karen allen um i guess this was i guess if I'm getting this right, Trev, this would be right like after Animal House, but before Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so Karen Allen, and then, like, for some reason, and this is, like, a little, like, maybe this is of the times and I just don't know or whatever, but he elbowed tits Karen Allen, who, like, totally knows what he's doing, totally calls him out for it. But then they, but then, like, I guess because he likes her, he thinks she's pretty or whatever, like, he starts hitting on her and asking her out, and she actually agrees. Well, kind of. So, so remember, like, this is where you get into, like, the 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 problems that develop with him and Joey. Yeah. Like, because he's dating Desi, he does this, like, roundabout way of it where he, he, he tells uh, this Nina girl that she should go out with Joey. And it's pretty clear what he's really doing. And I think she gets it, too, you know. The only problem is Joey doesn't pick up on it. Joey, like, really thinks, like, oh, man, like, my, my buddy's looking out for me. And I'm – and this does make Joey seem kind of dumb, I guess. Yeah, but. Yeah. But Joey believes that, like, yeah, now I've got this girl that's, like, going to go out with me because my buddy hooked us up. But as we see later, like, a party, they all, um, the four of them, Desi, Richie, Joey, and Nina, go up to play strip poker. Yeah. And it's pretty clear that, like, Nina and Richie have eyes for each other. Um, Again, Desi definitely picks up on it, gets very angry. But Joey's just kind of, like, for whatever reason, right, he's just got his blinders on and he's not really picking up on it. So basically what happens is Joey and uh, Desi, uh, which, am I saying that right? Is it Desi or Desby? I think it might be Desby. Oh, it is Desby, yeah. Yeah, yeah. De- okay, Desby. Yeah. I thought this was funny because, like, the guys are obviously running the con on the two girls just to get them naked. Because the girls don't even know how to play cards, really. So they're just like, it's like, oh, yeah, that, this beats that. And, oh, you got to take your shirt off, blah, blah, blah. And I think Karen Allen is, like, I think Desby is, like, legit getting fooled. And I think Karen Allen, like, she doesn't know what's going on with the cards, but I think she's willingly kind of playing into it. Yeah. And so, eventually, because, like, Richie is just sitting there drooling over Karen Allen, like, in front of his girlfriend the entire time. Eventually, Desby gets pissed and is like, okay, enough of this. We're going back to the party. So, she gets up and gets dressed, and everybody starts getting dressed or whatever. And, like, her and Joey go downstairs, but, like... Richie makes some excuses, oh, I'll be down in a minute. And, like, him and Karen Allen just, like, you know, whatever, start start hitting it off and going at it. And I'm just kind of like, how, like, like, I don't know, like, how stupid is Desby to leave that room? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, talk about a fatal flaw. But anyway, basically, yeah, th- what happens is um, Richie and Karen Allen go down to her car to, like, pretty much have sex, even though I don't think it quite gets to that level. It gets close. But meanwhile, the kind of the subplot of this is Turkey is with the Baldies, and he's like, hey, I know this Wanderers party, we can bust it up, we can beat them all up. So so at this point, Turkey's totally, you know, complete traitor. And uh, I guess his only attention or currency he has in the Baldies is, like, giving them information to fuck with the Wanderers. So he's like, yeah, we're going to, like, you know, bust in this party, and we're going to beat everybody up. And, like, uh, basically, like, the Baldies, like, drive this car over there. They send Turkey in first. He basically runs in there, you know, th- starts dropping. I believe he drops his uh, gay slurs <laughs> to the Wanderers. And, like, they chase him outside. And, uh, basically, the Baldies take off. Again, another joke on, you know, Turkey, whatever. He's not a – even though he's dressed and everything like a member of the Baldies, he's really not. Mm-hmm. Um so basically, all that commotion while they're chasing Turkey, that's when everybody runs outside and sees Karen Allen and Richie, uh, you know. And then, of course, Joey's mad because Richie took Karen Allen for himself. And also, Desby's mad because her boyfriend's cheating. And, like, it feels like this is going to be, like, a big, like, you know, momentous, uh, especially in the, the Richie-Desby relationship. But it kind of gets smoothed over later on. But the biggest thing that happens is Turkey just runs off. 
and he and he somehow runs you know he's running all night through the street whatever screaming for terror i think he's like super drunk too they set up he's super drunk so he's not you know he's not acting in his right mind and he ends up in the territory of the ducky boys and i thought this was strange as he he's like kind of drunk howling and wathering on the steps of this old church and there's like 200 ducky boys taking like midnight service in this church isn't there traffic so the leader of the ducky boys this little kind of short guy little this guy was menacing i gotta give him credit whoever he was he comes out and and, you know he like they don't talk they never talk they never say anything and he kind of like you know walks up to turkey and turkey's like first he's a little scared but then the the guy's like smiling at him and i thought this was really interesting what do you make of this trev it seems like uh turkey you know it's like oh you know kind of like don't hurt me type of thing and he, he starts telling him, you know we can go in the park and we can do this it's kind of like he's offering like uh i guess sexual favors to this ducky boy to like you know <laughs> yeah uh, i mean he's he, like we we kind of know turkey's character at this point and he will do anything like i'm so i i, I kind of wonder thought this i thought he was just gonna try and like join them now right because it just right. feels like that's his his whole thing right i'll just he'll do whatever it takes to get like in a group that will accept him and where he'll feel actually kind of protected. Yeah. And I almost think, or like, I almost was wondering, like, like, I was trying to figure out how much should I read into this scene because it's like, is he, because, I mean, obviously the fact that it, the first thing that would come to his mind would be to offer that guy sex is like, is this, is, you know, is, is he, I don't know, is like, is he doing this to try and stay safe out of fear or is this kind of who Turkey was all along and, like, maybe, you know, he had, like, a repressed uh, gay side and maybe that's why he had such, like, a weird, overwhelming desire to belong here, belong there, or whatever. So, I'm yeah. not I'm not sure. Did you read anything like that into there? Like, I... No, but it sounds like an interesting academic paper to be written. So, maybe you can get this published, your, <laughs> yeah. your, uh, your, your turkey theory. The is laundry. turkey gay or just a coward? <laughs> <laughs> an essay Not that we're the saying group. those are the same thing. We're no, no, no. Just, just a distinction is, there. is he afraid to fight a guy, or does he really want to make love to a guy? We don't know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So basically, this is where the Ducky Boys get really horror movie like, and we get a great. And I would say the Ducky Boy scenes, like if there was to be any sort of relationship between the Wanderers and the Warriors, like I guess the the Ducky Boy scenes are the only thing that could come, yeah, play anywhere in the in the Warriors territory a little bit, but. Even that, they're minimal. So they basically, uh, you know, and it's just like, these guys are like zombies. I mean, these scenes are really bizarre, the Ducky Boys, compared to the rest of the movie. Like, they just come out of nowhere. They come whatever. And, like, they really come and, like, chase him. He tries to crawl up, like, a railroad trestle type of thing. Or, I guess, a subway trestle, maybe. And, like, they're all banging on shit and doing shit. And he basically runs out of room to go. And he basically falls to his death. And then everybody just, like, disperses. It's like, whatever. So it's like... You know, and then, like we said, because this movie's just like a collection of scenes, more vignette style, then we just cut to the, um, you know, the Wanderers, their reaction kind of to what happened to Turkey or whatever. And then this is where, like, like this movie kind of, this this uh, turn of events kind of took me surprised. Even though I've seen this movie a couple times over the years, I always forget this was part of it. You know, then we come to the scene where basically a lot of people are walking around and they're catching the TVs and whatever. And we this is where we find out that the the JFK assassination took place. And like basically the J when you say the JFK assassination is the the thing that gets Richie and Desby back together. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So like we like we're leading to like the end, and I think like Richie's arc is is fairly interesting here because uh, what we find out, yeah, like he like kind of. 
there's some on the nose stuff here, but it works pretty well with Richie realizing that like things are are, are changing, right? We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about how on the nose that gets in a moment. <laughs> Very on the nose. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like the the because he sees Desby like after the JF, after learning the JFK thing, and they both kind of like uh, you know embrace about it because everyone is very very sad. Right, this kind of brings him back to Desby, and then we actually discover that that time when we saw them, uh, you know, having sex at the beginning of the film, he got her pregnant. Uh, yeah. And this kind of means that because you know they're uh, this kind of like traditional, you know, you don't want to find out that you you got a, a mob boss's daughter pregnant, right? So exactly. He's very worried about this, and the mob boss is not happy about it, but he kind of cools down a little bit and just accepts that like. You know that's fine, but now you are going to marry my daughter. Um, so Richie has no like no choice at this point, right? He has to be with Desby, and not only that, but by marrying her, he's marrying into this family, and it it sets Richie on a very different path than I think he was planning. And that's kind of like the bittersweet ending of this film for him is that we learn that he's basically going to end up working. Um, you know, I can't remember. Is he going to work at the bowling alley or at that restaurant? Uh, well, he's already working at the restaurant. Yeah, but he's kind of like now he's being told like there's actually like, like a nice little moment where. Um, the mob boss even gives him like the the same kind of Hawaiian shirt that they all wear, yeah. and it's it's very big. And he tells him like, yeah, you know, you're gonna grow into this because you know now you're just gonna be this like married guy like the rest of us, and my daughter's gonna cook for you all the time. Yeah. You're gonna get big and fat. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Richie just realizes like, oh, this like cool, exciting life I thought I was gonna lead is is gone now. I'm about yeah. to get married. I'm I'm getting sucked into this you know this little like small little mob family yeah um and then we get the most on the nose moment but i do really like it uh oh i love it too he sees uh nino walk by outside the restaurant and he he says like oh i'll be right back he goes to follow her and he never really quite catches up to her she ends up going into a bar and he walks up to it and we should point out that at this point like the entire soundtrack has been kind of this like classic rock of the era right all these like 60s pop rock songs and then he like looks into the window and sees that she's gone to see this this new performer playing at this bar named Bob Dylan. Yeah. And and Bob Dylan is performing the times they are a change in. Yeah. And uh, and that's that's pretty on the nose. But Richie sees that and just accepts that like okay this I I missed my shot with this girl uh, never mind and he kind of goes back to yeah. the restaurant and accepts his his new fate. Yeah, I also took it too because he's watching her. You know, she she goes in and she meets some friends there and sits down and starts watching Bob Dylan and whatever. And I, I think also too, him peeking in that window is besides he missed his chance with that girl and it's just never going to happen. Whatever. I think he also like like we said, it's on the nose with the times are changing. But I I, I think I think that scene also kind of cements him into being okay i'm this type of guy i'm stuck yep. into this type of life i'm stuck in this type of world of people yeah yeah and she's I, not in my world exactly i don't belong on the other side of that glass whereas mm-hmm. like you know because it put a lot of strain you know when he got caught cheating with her it put a lot of strain not just between him and desby obviously the relationship but it also put a lot of strain between him and the the wanderers it really seemed like because because he kind of deserted the group and he he only came to play in the football game in like the last minute he kind of once he saw they were losing they needed his help but uh i have to say like i mean like you said it's on the nose it's whatever i mean this the the wrap-up to this movie between what richie's going through and then also we see Joey and Perry, they discover that, you know, well, actually, Joey always knew, but I don't think Perry really did, but they're, they're kind of, like, laying low at uh, 
uh, Perry's uh, apartment and uh, Joey's dad comes over to bang the mom or whatever who's not there at the time and uh, there's a big you know physical row and pretty much Joey and Perry are, are you know grab the car and they're on the run they're escaping you know to go somewhere else and they, they go and they meet up uh, you know with uh, Richie to say one good time so you know say goodbye one last time and then also Pee Wee kind of makes her way in there and they mm-hmm. kind of make peace with Pee Wee and stuff so like the end of the, the end of the movie is very much you know these two guys are going to just drive off into whatever to go discover their life somewhere. Richie is stuck in his path. I mean, yeah. even a, a supplementary character like Pee Wee has nowhere to go because there was a scene earlier where the drunken Baldies got tricked into joining the Marines. So like, it's very much everything. I mean, and it's like literally like they haven't even really graduated high school yet, but it's just. Yeah. It's just that yeah. coming of age movie that ends on that note where everything's different now. You know, all yeah, the f- and it's an interesting ending because it's a very sad ending for Richie, kind of an ambivalent ending for Pee Wee, um, but a kind of an oddly hopeful ending for Joey and Perry. So everyone's right. like on different paths, right? There's no like one emotional tone at the end, and even like the Richie thing. I think you think about it like because Joey is kind of sold as Richie's best friend for a bit, or the one he's the you know the closest to. They sell it like it's it's very sad for him that that Joey and Perry are leaving. But then he goes back in the restaurant and you realize, like we said, there's still like 80 other wanderers right. for him to keep being friends with, you know, for a while. And and he's got, you know, now he's got this like family he's marrying into. And Desby does actually seem like she will be a kind of loving wife. You know, she really does seem like she likes Richie other than, you know, some of their little blow ups. Yeah. So I don't know. It's like it's kind of that thing of just when you're when you're young. Right. Any kind of change in life seems like devastating. Yeah. Um, but but it definitely is, is is emotional for him in the moment. The one thing that I always I don't know about you, but every time I watch the movie, I really do wish that Joey and Perry let Pee Wee go with them. Like yeah. that always kind of bums me out a little bit. Because there almost seems like a, and I think it's because they both were like the pipsqueaks of their respective groups. But there's there's like that little scene where like first Joey's like kind of chasing Pee Wee, and then she's screaming, "Get off me!" Whatever, and then he you know he puts his arm around her and he's nice to her for a second there's like almost like a kinship between joey and uh, peewee mm-hmm. to where if they let peewee jump in the car like it really wouldn't seem that corny or forced you know what i mean no yeah but i mean yeah it's just it's that thing of like of really like what we all go through uh i think first when we graduate high school and we lose some friends and then you know later also too you graduate college lose some friends or just people go in the service or move away or just whatever happens like I really love this movie like a lot, and uh, yeah. you know there are times where it's like a little hokey, a little forced. Some dots don't connect as strongly as maybe they should have. But like, yeah, like as far as like this type of movie that is trying to be this this period piece coming of age, you know whatever little uh, imperfections or whatever it has, like the characters are so memorable. Like I really love it. I mean, a lot, and and I, I kind of always have. I, I don't know quite when i first saw this but i know i caught it on tv years ago and then i think i rented a dvd or maybe caught it on tv again like maybe five or six years ago and like this has kind of been like a running i wouldn't say a joke but a running thing between you and me is trev's always like when you want to get that wonder because the blu-ray came out about three years ago when you going to get the wonders what you always ask me when you going to get the wonders when you're gonna get and finally it was on sale i was like okay i'm getting it you know and i started i was like i better buy this damn thing before it goes uh out of print or whatever <laughs> but, yeah it's but, a good blue too it's got two cuts yeah. on there and yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, two disc. Uh, the one is the preview cut. I think it's about six minutes longer. It was taken. Like, the, the theatrical cut is, like, all restored and stuff. It's in pretty good shape. The preview cut is a little more beat up. It was just mm-hmm. made from the director's personal print that he had laying around or whatever. But, yeah, it's 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 great. I'm, I'm glad that there's a company out there that actually, uh, you know, yeah. t- takes these movies. Because they actually rebooked it into some uh, theaters when, when they did the restoration as well. Yeah, it's another film that's had like you know resurgences here and there, and it's maintained a healthy cult following. I I can't remember exactly when my first exposure to this one was either, um, but I know the way I found out about it was. Uh, are you familiar with Danny Perry's cult movies books? No, no. So so Danny Perry is this is this uh, you know uh, film critic and writer who wrote these books about cult movies back in like the eighties. Um, I think there's, there was like three of them, and I used to check them out from the library all the time. Until I eventually ended up getting my own copies of them, but they're kind of they were for in the in the eighties and early nineties they were like the like kind of go to reference books for cult films, and he would give a synopsis of the film and then like his his like personal breakdown of it, and that's where I learned about a lot of the cool cult movies when I was you know that's just when I was getting into movies enough to be like I want to be the cool kid that knows all the weird movies other people don't know. And it was through him that I learned about things like Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, and uh, Pink Flamingos and stuff like that. And and one of the books, he talked about The Wanderers. And that's how I found out about it. And I think because of just the name and knowing it's about gangs, I'm, I'm pretty sure I went into it expecting another Warriors, right? Yeah. But like you said, it's a very different kind of film, but no less effective. Um, very, very, like, it is a very, like, there's a lot of tonal whiplash, but that's what I like about it. Like, we're, I think you and I have talked about this before. We kind of miss movies like this that are, yeah. don't feel beholden to one genre or tone. And you do get some really good coming-of-age drama here. You get some neat little horror scenes, the Ducky Boys. The whole football brawl is pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, I love this one too. And I think these two, uh, make, I, I've, I've since learned, we talked about doing this episode and I kind of looked into it and a lot of theaters have double build these and I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think, you know, if you, even if you want to do like a fun little double build with your friends in a backyard during quarantine or something, these two go well together. I think I did want to quickly mention one other last thing about the Wanderers, which is kind of amazing to me. I know this is kind of mind blowing in a way, but so it was made in 79. Right. And it's a, and it's a nostalgic movie looking back at 1963. And this gets into like one of my favorite topics of conversation about how much America like used to, how much change there was in America, like quickly before and how that's really stagnated in recent time yeah and i'll tell you what i mean by that so in 79 you could already make a a movie about 63 and have it be very like this this nostalgic look back at a different time but by that timeline if you made the wanderers today in 2020 it would be about 2004 right which is like (laughs) which there's like nothing to really talk about yeah i I, I think the only movie that the only movie you know and i always say you know like nobody's nostalgic for like a while ago or whatever but the only movie i can think of on the top of my head that referenced like you know and it did it way sooner than like you know 79 to to 63 but the only movie that i can think of that really like put any references and even then it was kind of tangential like that in recent times was um that Brad Pitt movie, Killing Them Softly, which had like a lot of lookbacks to 2008 and the uncertainty around the economy and the election and stuff. But other than that movie, there's not a, there's not a, like even though we're in like 2020, going into 2021 around, there's really no movies around other than the ones that deal with the financial crisis specifically. Um, there's really no movies around that reference like what really happened in like the early. Well, think, 2000s. like I mean, so like. A movie set in the early '60s, made in '79, '80, right? Even like it looks different than what that time is, right? right. But I mean, 
2004 doesn't look that different than no. 2020. So if you ever like want to like get a nice little reminder of how much culture changed to the 60s and 70s, there you go, right? Those two decades. Uh, I mean, it's you know it's kind of known how the 60s is like one of the most turbulent times in America, and this movie does sell the idea of how this is like the you know we're going into the Vietnam War and everything because that's why the the Baldies get kind of uh, sucked up into that. But yeah, things changed a lot, and uh, already by '79, people were like, oh, remember, you know, just a few <laughs> years ago when things were completely different. Well, I mean, it was basic things like cars and clothes and stuff, but like they had a even with you know a movie like The Wanderers, they had to recreate the time, and yeah. it's and it's like you know, it's like aside, I'd say from like the re- recent like maybe five last five six years, the recent like giant beards phenomenon of of guys. <laughs> Like, other than that, like, skinny jeans and, like, buzz cuts and, like, mm-hmm. whatever. Like, the fashion has not changed a lot in the yeah, last 15 no, years. Yeah, to look the same for 20 yeah. years. And, yeah. yeah. Just really weird. So, I, I, I guess if I were to compare these two films, and like I said before, I don't think they're really in the same genre at all. But I would say the Warriors are a great, you know, kind of like, even though there is some great, like, little gems, like we said, that reveal character and story and emotion, it's a great... Almost like a great movie to drink beer with your friends too, and yeah. I and to me, and I think this is when I probably originally caught the Wanderers was over the air broadcast, uh, you know, independent stations that just show random movies in the middle of the afternoon on the weekends. I'm I, I'm ninety nine percent sure I I originally caught this on a Sunday afternoon by myself on TV, and like I think the Wanderers is a a great movie to kind of sit in a room by yourself and watch and think about and feel and you know because i mean obviously you know i wasn't alive during that time period but like we said just the transformations and the transitions that the characters go through growing up it's something anybody of any age can really relate to mm-hmm. now here's the but here's the big question go we said we we're gonna we we're gonna talk yeah. about this the wanderers versus the warriors in an all-out brawl who wins Okay, if you're going gang to gang, I think I I, th- I think the Warriors would win. If you- if you're talking about a one-on-one matchup, I think the like like okay, you pick your best guy, I'll pick your best guy. Because I mean, the majority of the Wanderers are not tough. I mean, there's a reason why they need reinforcements to take on the Dell Bombers. You know, the only one yeah. that can really kick ass is Perry. So I say group to group, I think the Warriors are going to win one-on-one. This is what I. This is what I'm curious about, Trev. One on one, if if I had to pick the the strongest fighters of both sides, I'm actually going Ajax versus Perry. But I think Perry's yep. going to win. Yeah, I have to agree. Uh, same thing. Like the, I mean, the the only problem with this is we don't really know how many warriors there are because right. we only know about the nine that are sent to this meeting. Right. Um, and we certainly we don't really know an exact number of the wanderers either, but we see that there's a lot of them. But but I agree. I just think the Warriors seem tougher, right? I don't oh, know yeah. that I would. The war the Wanderers are kind of constantly running from battle, right? Yeah. Like they they are they are not rushing into combat or mm-hmm. into conflict. Um, and I don't think if the Wanderers had to make it from, uh, you know, that park back to Coney Island, well, they wouldn't be going to Coney Island. But yeah. they they wouldn't they wouldn't survive the night. But you're right that I think Perry individually could take a lot of the uh, a lot of the Wanderers. Yeah, or, I, I mean, sorry, a lot of the Warriors. I mean. Yeah, yeah. I I think the only way in like a group battle that the you know whatever I I think Swan is pretty tough. I mean, he mm-hmm. like I think Swan, Ajax, and I mean if if we were gonna say like Cleon, you know, he's not dead. He's part of it. Like even though we don't really see Cleon fight. 
either Cleon or Coach. I think two or three of those guys could team up and take Perry down. I, I think the first one to go down in the fight, honestly, uh, I really don't even think it would be Joey, even though he's the smallest. You know who I think would go down in the fight first? is I think it's that blonde guy that's like barely in the movie, and then the second half he kind of hangs around and he pukes in the... Uh, the party scene, that blonde guy that just kind of appears out of nowhere of the yeah. of the wanderers. I think that guy would be the first one to go down in the fight. Now I'm going to pitch something for you, Goat. Do you want to join me in on this? And I'm calling copyright right now, so nobody listening can take this. Okay. I say I say we write an in between movie called Once a Wanderer, Always a Warrior, and we reveal that. So you you start the film. This takes place sometime in between the two movies, and Perry comes back to New York. Um, something bad has happened and Joey, you know, bit off more than he can chew back in California, talked his, you know, shot his mouth somewhere and got killed. Right. And Perry's coming back and he comes back to New York. That's now starting to be completely overrun by these gangs, the ducky boys, the, the baldies, right. They've all kind of taken over the wanderers are this like shell of their former selves there. He comes back to try and like, you know, regalvanize them, but it's just not working. And at the end of the film, we actually see him, you know, take the wanderer's jacket and kind of like cut it up, dye it, and make the first warrior's vest. And we learn that this one gang became the other. I think we could make a lot of money with this idea. I think we could. I th- I'll be honest. I thought you were going to go with a different story, different uh, pitch for that. I think that would work. I'm, I'm going to pitch you this, okay? Okay. So the, the this my version of the movie, this is just a small independent drama, okay? Okay. It, it picks up at the end of the warrior's. Um. Uh, Swan and uh, what, what's the female's name? Marcy and Mercy. 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 Yeah. yeah. Swan and Mercy. Like you said, like they're contemplating leaving. You know, the gang scene is unfulfilling. You know, like like finally all the information comes back to them. Cleon's dead. Who's the co-founder of the Warriors? Um, a, a Fox is dead. Like it's 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 really you know because because they're definitely they're older than the characters were in the Wanderers. So like they're they're at that point where it's like okay do we grow up and become real adults or do we not but at the same time they still got their their you know the the warriors are like we need to get payback for this and this we need to set this right they got other new skirmishes popping up so it's really a existential conflict between you know does swan pick the girl and have a new feature with mercy or does he remain and you know take care of the remaining uh, warriors so while this is going on he stumbles into a pizzeria, um, you know, he sits down, he, you know, because cause keep in mind, you know, Warriors is like indeterminate whatever future. So it's like, like this is probably a good 20 years after the uh, the Wanderers happened. So here comes Richie out to serve him pizza and beer. And like, you know, Richie, he's overweight now. He's got four kids. He's got like, he's really burdened by the whatever. And it's almost like the uh, like a filmic version of that Bruce Springsteen song "Glory Days," where one guy's coming out of a bar, another guy's coming in. They decide to go in and you know relive a story. So basically, they strike up a friendship, you know, that kind of blossoms over a few weeks or whatever. You know, you know, Swan to get away, he stops into this little shithole pizzeria, has a beer, has a slice, whatever. Richie, you know, they talk back and forth, and they find out how much they have in common with the with the the gang lifestyle. And Richie, he's like, he's in deep with the mob now. He's like, you know, his his whatever uh, father in law is still running shit. So have him So like, they both want to escape really bad, but Richie knows it's like 
from this life, but Richie knows it's too late for him, so, you know, he helps actually Swan, like, you know, convince him, and then also, you know, he helps solve some of the problems he's got on the Warriors, so him and Mercy can make a, you know, a clean getaway, because after all, Richie's still bitter that he never went after the one girl that he really wanted. Yeah. Hey, man, there's nothing about my story that wouldn't, like, would like take yours out of the equation so no. i said we just do, we just do them both and we just create a whole universe here <laughs> we can create them but that would be great <laughs> now here's the real question though are we gonna go the um you know the star wars um you know marvel de-aging thing or are we gonna recast yeah i don't know like i, I guess you'd have to recast right yeah. i mean i guess not for uh well even for your version i guess you probably you would still would have to do some some digital tinkering or recasting but but that's a shame because all these performers are people i'd like to see especially like ken wall like i know he had yeah. some uh some medical problems yeah. and i also heard that during wise guy he wasn't necessarily the easiest person to work with but uh but he's a screen presence i miss nowadays yeah i want to see the like kind of tawdry behind the scenes whatever biopic movie with Kim Wall where he's like married to both of the Barbie twins at the same time. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. Didn't he break his back or something though during Wise Guy and that's Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he, he it, was, it was the back thing and then basically he had to you know medicate and then also self medicate and that kind of derailed his, you know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. He's not even in the last season's like a new main character, right? I know. Yeah. And then like some of the stuff he did later like that I think he did like that Taking in Beverly Hills movie that didn't go over I, too I, well. I, I enjoy that movie though. It's like a corny little I've never movie. seen it. I heard a lot of people talk about it. I've never seen it. But yeah. But uh yeah, The Warriors and Wonders, man. I mean, I think we pretty much said everything you can say, but I would highly recommend to anybody. I'm sure I'm sure everybody listening to this show has seen at least one of them. But if you haven't mm-hmm. seen both of them, you know, track the other one down that you haven't seen. Yeah. Um, I have some uh, re- retractions and corrections uh, from our last show, Trev. We did the uh, Forgotten Films of the 80s. And when I was talking about Cherry 2000, for some reason I kept saying Melanie Griffith's name was Red in the movie. I think because she had red hair and I think because I watched another movie. Her name in the movie is E. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> the farthest thing from red you could get so so i i'm sure people listen there who probably are familiar with the movie they're like why who the fuck is red why does he keep talking about red so e johnson and also another tidbit uh carrying from that show this will only help people who are listening to the show recently in the next week or two but i'm happy to report that out of bounds is now on sony movie channel so if you have that oh, channel really? yeah if you have it on cable i uh i did the on demand uh, there's a couple showings that you can dvr if you don't have the on demand so i'm gonna on demand it here in a couple days and uh then i'm gonna i think the next showing isn't until like the ninth or tenth but i want to dvr it too so that i'm hoping i can hold on to a dvr copy until a blu-ray comes out correct me if i'm wrong but isn't it also the case that during that episode we talked about gotcha and yeah. and then you were you were bemoaning it not having a blu-ray release and yeah. then literally like yeah. half an hour after we stopped recording i sent you like i saw a tweet that the yeah. blue just got announced i think you told me on the air though because I, I? Cause I think I was like, oh, it's been announced. Because I knew it was coming out. I think I was like, oh, it's been announced, but uh, I don't know. I don't think it's out yet. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's coming out September or whatever. So I think we yeah. did clear that one up. Okay. So, yeah. You already have it pre-ordered? No. You know you know what I did was, uh, by the way, Cherry 2000 finally went on sale. So I finally ordered Cherry 2000. And I also picked up some other uh, Melanie Griffith movies. Um, uh, these are all from the same studio. That's why I'm kind of talking about this together. But... Uh, I also picked up uh, Born Yesterday with Melanie Griffith, Don Johnson, and John Goodman. I haven't seen that movie, but it looked yeah, good. Yeah, I don't know that one. 
Yeah, and then I also picked up the Antonio Banderas double feature with featuring too much with Melanie Griffith and Antonio Banderas. I just want to like I've been doing this weird thing where I I just get into like like actors and I I try to watch a bunch of their movies at once. But I was gonna pre-order Gotcha, and I think it's up for only fifteen bucks pre-order. But it was that thing the way Kino did it, like I couldn't get the other movies. Because, like, if you have a pre-order item and that one doesn't come out to, like, mid-September, they'll just wait to ship your order, you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I was like, I don't want to wait that long. And, like, I'll be honest, I'm I'm doing a Kino order about once a month. Because it's really tricky. They don't put all their titles on sale at once. Like, I, like literally, I've had to do multiple orders and then I just end up, like, buying other things. Another one I picked up this time was, uh, I always wanted to see this movie, never got around to it, is The Indian Runner. Uh, directed by Sean Penn. Have you seen that movie, Trev? No, I haven't. Yeah, I, that's another one. I've it's, it's on my it's uh, on a shame list for me. I would like to see yeah. it. But. Yeah, it's got a powerhouse cast. I'm like, damn, mm-hmm. for you know whatever it was, eight, ten bucks. I was like, I gotta pick this up. So yeah, but no, Gotcha will be pre-ordered here pretty damn soon. Um, there's a couple other titles that aren't on sale now that I'm hoping will go on sale, and then I'll do another round with Gotcha. But yeah, Gotcha, I'm gonna have that shit like, bam, like the second it comes off the presses, I need that. Also, too, before we go out here, I just wanted to uh, mention some things, some milestones. Um, I'm very uh, uh, happy about or proud of, I guess you could say. Um, uh, at the very, well, really technically around this time, but really started you know, releasing episodes. Uh, later this month, Trev, will be the five-year anniversary of uh, the movie Graveyard. So. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, and uh, we recently broke the 80-episode barrier, which is really good. And uh, I just wanted to personally thank you while you're here um, because uh, you were a big part of that and, you know, helped keep the show going. You know, always yeah. always willing to stop by and do an appearance and also bring up topics like this awesome topic we did today. So, Yeah, hey. no, thank you. It's, it's one of my favorite shows to come on just because we always do get to talk about movies that I love that I have no other outlet for and nobody wants yeah. to talk about. So... And then even during doing doing the show, like if we can look back a little bit, you introduced me to some cool stuff I had never seen. The Chocolate War, and you asked me to watch that, and we did that, and yeah, so it's 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 been really fun. Yeah, it's it's, it's been a long road, and uh, I'm like now that it's like you know within distance, I'm really uh, looking forward. To, not that it means anything, but I'm really looking forward to to breaking that hundred episode barrier. I've never yeah all my various podcasts yeah, yeah all my various podcasts I've never hit the the, the one hundred episode. <laughs> barrier so can i throw out a couple of quick plugs here yeah go for it because uh because not only so uh you know listeners who've heard me on here before you always have heard me plug and i'll continue to plug i'm still doing uh days of future podcast my my x-men show with my buddy joe but uh, very soon here, I'm actually starting up another podcast that Ooh. I think also go, you'll be interested in. And maybe there'll even be a place for you to appear on it at some point. But uh, me and a friend of mine named Chris are soon to start up a podcast that we are planning to call Failure to Franchise, Ooh. which will be every episode we will be looking at a, a Hollywood film that was meant to start a franchise and never got any sequels. And we will be doing a full deconstruction of why they thought it was going to work, what went wrong, and then we'll talk about what we think that franchise could have looked like if it had happened. Um, you'd think there might not be that material, that much material for that, but we've already got a list of over 100 films to work with. Wow. And we will also occasionally be looking at, we'll do some special episodes where we look at unsold pilots for TV shows like the David E. Kelly Wonder Woman, um, Heat Vision and Jack, the, the infamous Dan Harmon, Jack Black uh, show about a talking motorcycle 
um, and some other. So we'll do those unsold pilots occasionally. But usually we'll be looking at films like, you know, like John Carter, Green Lantern, Wild Wild West, Lone Ranger, um, Jupiter Ascending, things like that, that uh, the hubris of Hollywood thinking everything will lead to five films. Yeah, you know? that's that's actually I think that's a great idea, uh, you know, because because I love movie podcasts. and I, you know, I try to keep up with a lot of them. Um and uh but you know they're all roughly around the same time like that like that's a great hook you guys came up with and uh yeah Yeah, we were him and i often laugh about how many movies we watch that always end with this like obvious sequel bait right they just think everything now is going to is going to work so we just wanted to highlight like the the stupidity that sometimes and and also some that we that we think should have worked and just didn't for whatever reason you know things like uh dread and and uh you know even something like uh like speed racer movies i like that you're like oh it's too bad yeah. you know but i think there's definitely about 20 or 30 you can do in the horror genre that just end on uh characters walking away the camera panning over and then some some monster eggs sitting there you know what yeah. I, mean? <laughs> I also think it's a probably safe bet we can probably do about 85 percent of Lionsgate's catalog <laughs> 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 oh yeah <laughs> Big time. Uh, the, the, uh, I mean, you can't do an episode about it, but at least as a footnote, you guys you guys at some point have to talk about the real failure to franchise that was Divergent. Holy shit. Yeah. A, a movie, a, a series that was supposed to be a trilogy, and then for greed reasons, they split the third uh, book slash movie into two, and then they just never made part two. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting because I was we were talking about that, and like I said, we're we're sticking for, we're sticking to movies that never got any sequels, uh, which takes some of those things off the table. But yeah. you, you can you can chime in on this, goat. I can only think of in recent times because like if if something does get that first sequel made, then Hollywood will plow through and make like the whole trilogy, right? Like they don't care about if it's still popular or not. And the only two franchises I can think of in modern history that just didn't get to finish, really, like they they teased a final film that never got made, are Divergent and the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man series. I feel like everything else eked out a finish somewhat. Yeah, like I know the Spider-Man thing had a little more to do with like they had a jump at the chance that they had at the time to get in bed with Marvel. But under any other circumstances, like, I mean... (sighs) They they should have just made like a part three just to, so they could say we made a trilogy. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, like I think you're right that it's clearly just a Marvel thing because as we're seeing now, it's not like Sony. Sony will make any Spider-Man film they can. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. When you're doing Madam Web and, and Morbius movies, you clearly don't have high quality control. So yeah, yeah. Failure to franchise. That sounds like a great idea. Is there, is there an ETA of when the first episodes drop in Trev? We're hoping September. We're gonna, okay. We're going to hopefully start recording uh, this month. So awesome. Coming soon. I'm looking forward to it. So yeah. So so that's it. I uh, just want to thank you for joining me again, Trev. Um, obviously, thank all our listeners for listening. Um, it's it, it's been a good summer. Uh, there's you know, like I said, I'm you know I keep hearing a lot. Um, about how hard it is for podcasts right now because of lack of commute times and gym time and all that kind of stuff, decreasing listenership. And I'm happy to say that we're chugging light along. And uh, yeah, everybody have a have a good whatever. Uh, watch some good retro movies, and uh, we'll see you soon in the movie graveyard. Yep.